Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about safety insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And Brown University pre-college programs, where high school students experience college life, nurture their diverse interests, and make friends and memories that last a lifetime. You can apply online at precollege.brown.edu. We head on Boston Public Radio. When Donald Trump went from reality star to commander-in-chief, some took comfort in knowing that at least the generals could rein in even his wildest impulses. Well, many generals are gone. The tanks are coming out, at least if the president has his way. Despite criticism from the current and former Secretary of Defense, the president still has one general, Attorney General Barr, on his side. But was Tennessee Senator Corker right when he said the generals are what stand between us and chaos? We'll ask Chuck Todd, then we'll ask you. While the people protest the police, some police officers appear to be protesting themselves. And amid images of violent clashes between riot police and protesters were ones of officers taking a knee, marching next to protesters, hugging some, even encouraging them to continue to protest. Some say that's a sign the relationship between the watchmen and those they watch is not beyond repair. Others say it's a cynical ploy. We'll discuss that more up ahead with former Sheriff Andrew Cabral on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. He's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Good. How are you? Living the dream. So from his uh, <laughs> literal Bible thumping to chest thumping, Trump is dividing evangelical loyalists and escalating tensions among current and former Pentagon officials. As the self-described law and order presidency spirals the nation into chaos, it takes the healer in chief, Barack Obama, to remind us all that the country Donald Trump presides over was built on the very spirit of protest that Trump so desperately appears to want to kill. Joining us a line for his take on all of this and more is Chuck Todd. He's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston. It's Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Hello, Chuck Todd. And hello there. How are you doing? Mm, excellent. Well, yeah. you know, I, I'm, har- I'm heartened. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> I, I'm heartened a little bit. Uh, this morning, uh, Chuck, watching your station, MSNBC, to yeah. see that in addition to um, Defense Secretary uh, Esper, who did a 180 and dis- disagreed with the pres- president's use of force to clear uh, peaceful protesters out of Lafayette Square, um, we now have statements from the former um, Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, basically uh, mm-hmm. tr- trashing the president's leadership. We have the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the current Joyce Chiefs of Staff, Mark Miley, according to you guys at MSNBC this morning, uh, reminding the troops uh, in the United States of America that they have to uphold the Constitution and the ideals of the Constitution. And we have two former uh, uh, bigwigs in the military, uh, this uh, retired military general, John Allen, um, and and Mike Mullen, uh, who goes so far as to say, uh, in his remarks, that he questions the soundness of the orders coming out of the White House under Donald Trump, and we are at an inflection point that's imp- where it's impossible to remain silent. So basically, we have what a revolt here. What are you suggesting? Here. It's a military coup, Marjorie. What are you doing? Well, it sounds like a military revolt, um, at least in words, against the the, well, the unconstitutional actions of the president. Let, let, I will put it this way: I think what happened, what you saw happen, is that Mullen 
the, I think the, the words that mattered the most early on were Mullen. He came out first, Mike Mullen. Then you had Mattis yesterday. Um, but I think that sobered up Millie and Esper. The point is, is I think Esper and Millie were, were, were going down a, a – oh, they were going down a road that basically, you know, a lot of other Pentagon veterans were like, what are you doing? This is not going to end well. You know, sort of almost like it was like Mullen's statement to me felt like he was grabbing Esper by the, by the, by the coat and shaking him. Right, Millie too. I mean, I, I you know, the Millie being in fatigues as he was walking down there it was just right. That only added to the un- discomfort I think for folks. So I think at a minimum, what this did is that I think this will mean that Barr and Trump are not going to push this further. I mean, I think this got this had the intended effect. If you were to probably talk to Mattis and Mullen and say, why did you do this? And it was simply to get the, the basic the leaders at the Pentagon to be leaders at the Pentagon. Um, they have. They've now done the right thing. They've now sort of, you know, basically created some distance between um, the politics here and the military, which was desperately needed. Um, and we'll see what President Trump does. But I think it is, at least in the short term, I'd like to think this will prevent Trump and Barr from doing something more drastic, particularly here in the, in the nation's capital. I have to tell you, what's being done to the nation's capital, this militarization, it's we're not at war. And yet I, I feel like the attorney general has really believed that in the general part of his title. And he's trying to play general here in the, in the district. I, I, you know, I, I know that the president directed him to do this. But it is, it's a picture of the district that is unnecessary. Well, Chuck Todd, one of the pictures of the district that has been upsetting to many people is that there's no, who are these military people? There, there's no Hake, identification. My, uh, my, my colleagues, Garrett Hake has been very good about, you know, going up to these guys, where are you from? They yeah. want to talk. Yeah. He can't find any insignia. I mean, we have basically people claiming to be law enforcement people who don't identify where they're from. You know, he said he's seen some patches. He saw a Bureau of Prisons patch. And you're Texas like, Bureau of Prisons what? last night, yeah. What are you, what, what, what is this? And then the, then all of a sudden those folks disappeared and they replaced it with some D.C. National Guard. But it was like, what is this? And I saw the state of Florida sending under 500 National Guard to the district. We are not at war here. This is absurd. I, I, I'm just like, we're, you know, it is, it is, it, it it's, if you're here, it's strange. Trust me. You know, wasn't it Corker, former Senator Corker, I hope I got it right, from Tennessee, who said mm-hmm. the generals are what stand between us and chaos? They didn't at the time. I think that's when mm-hmm. Kelly was the uh, chief of staff and some others, and maybe even Mattis was when there. And they were talking then. about the, yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, Mc, McMath, when you had Kelly McMath. Yes. And, right. Uh, right. The but, you know, general. Yeah. even though, Chuck, you were saying that Esper was just following the leader, and you're probably right. You and I mean, we've talked to you about this ad nauseum. Uh, where are the people currently serving the president who have no, enough spine no to stand up to him while they work for him as opposed to after the they're fact? All gone. And yeah, but Esper, I mean, gone. but Esper did it, didn't he? Regardless of how he got there, yeah. Well, we'll see if he lasts. Well, that's a good point, okay. too. Of course, I mean, you know, let's let's see if you know, apparently he did force. Uh, Esper to reverse an order by the army. The army it was going was pulling its troops out of D.C. Mm. and Trump made him reverse the order. Oh, I didn't know that. So, 
And Esper, what I think is interesting is that Esper made it clear to the Associated Press that Trump made him reverse the order. That's that is important. The fact that he wanted that out there. But look, here's the bigger problem that the military has, the military leadership has. And it's like somebody reminded them 40 percent of the military is not white. Mm. OK, yeah. this is 40 percent, not 10 percent, not 15, 40 percent is black or brown. Um, and, it, you know, it's. It, it, it's it's sort of like what what are you doing? I mean it's it's put it this way if you were to imagine a CEO if if forty percent of their uh, customers forty percent of their employees um, anyway you just would we'd be like well that's that's stupid business that's bad for business you know forget the political point mm-hmm. forget the morality of it and it's just um, it's basically a lack of self awareness by the leadership at the, at the Pentagon that I think now, again, what I say is I feel like Mullen and Mattis served as sort of the people to sober them up. Like, hey, yeah, yeah, wake but up. You know, I don't mean to be Johnny one note, but while the Mattis statement was strong, I'm sure everybody's heard it. We were witnessing the consequences of three years of their this deliberate effort to divide to divide us. We're witnessing the consequences. Can I, can I, in fact, can I pause at it a minute? Yeah. We, we, I believe the three of us had this discussion about your frustration of Mattis. Remember when he came on my show? Yeah. He just yep. wasn't going to do it. And you guys were frustrated. Yep. But I will say this. He said, you know, he was keeping his powder dry. Well, he didn't keep his powder dry now, right? He And I could make an argument that that preserving that, it it meant a lot today, didn't mm. it? It had a big impact. Yes. Anyway. It did, even though okay. it would have meant a little more when he was serving him, I guess is what I'm saying. But you were, you well, were right. We're talking right. to Chuck Todd. Yeah, I know. There's may. That you're, I, I hear you. I hear you. But anyway, sorry, Jim. I didn't know. <laughs> I know you too. But you know, you, you know, th- this gets back to one of the perpetual questions we've had since the president became the president: is are you better off having people uh, like an Esper who has been chastened and, and we hope is on the right page, serving to kind of temper what the president does, or Fauci, or, or Fauci, or exactly, or is it? I think it's better than having nobody there except for like Stephen Miller and Attorney General Barr or people that seem to have lost their moorings. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, for the country. Because I I think a lot of people are scared. I'm scared. I think, and I understand because the question is, I don't know how many people will stand up and stop the president from doing these things. The point is, is that earlier this week, it looked like nobody would. And you're right. You've got Esper claiming, I don't support the Insurrection Act. But if the president invokes it, does Esper follow orders or does he resign? Right. Like, I guess that would be the that would be the test. That will be what's coming. He says he's not in favor of it. If the president invokes it, does Esper follow orders? Does Millie follow orders? That's, I guess, the next test of this. I happen to think that what we saw, that perhaps the only the one short term impact of all of this of all these former generals speaking out now is that it probably keeps president. It probably even grows the spine of Mark Meadows to say, don't do this. Yeah. Speaking of spine, can we just do one more thing on this topic? Marjorie texts me frantically a couple of nights ago saying, are you watching MSNBC? And I wasn't (laughs) at the moment. My apologies. And what she was alerting me to was one of your reporters. I think it was Casey Hunt. 
whoever it was. Is Casey Hunt a, asking a all the senators? Yeah. Republican the senators. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was at lunch. Oh, yeah. I didn't see. This is the photo op thing, obviously, that all of America the pro, was the pro, tuned into. Our, our, the video, the video version of Profiles and Courage. Everybody's always wanted the movie version, and I think you know, Casey Hunt narrated the the movie version of Profiles and Courage. Yeah, oh my it was, god, it was, it was fantastic. It was. Well, tell us. Can't, it would par- parody doesn't do it justice. I mean, so here's the look. Part of this is sort of the the coronavirus trap that the, the senators are in. So to have their weekly lunch, they have it now in a different room so they can sit farther apart from each other. Well, the only way to get to that room is they have to walk basically by a bank of TV cameras, right? <laughs> so Casey and I got there early and, and asked them all the same question. You know, do you have any comment about what the president did last night? David? You know, just went through it. And, you you know, you, so Pat Roberts was my favorite because he wanted to say something. And he, sat, and he like, stops and he holds up his hand. First of all, they're all wearing masks, so it's even – it's sort of a better look, right? They're the best. You don't know if they're mumbling something <laughs> under their breath or not. And, and at one point, Roberts is turning, and he's going to say something. And he just goes to the door. Lisa Murkowski, who you wouldn't be surprised, was going to say, well, that's not the America. But she said it so fast as she was walking in, that's not the America that I've come to know. And then just walk, you know, which is about what you'd expect Lisa Murkowski to be one of the few to mm-hmm. offer some, some critical great. words. But um, it was sort of this, and of course, McConnell, stone face, just stone face, you know. But, you know, that's something he's been doing for years. I thought our former governor, I always hoped that Mitt Romney is going to stand up, as he occasionally did during the impeachment. By the way, Mitt was... Mitt was one of those that said he hadn't seen everything. I know. It's exactly. unbelievable. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I mean, are you kidding me? You know, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Did you see it now? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. 28-3. No, you didn't. You know. So we presume, once again, this is all about uh, worrying about a, a Republican in their pr- primary fight or losing Romney's their re-election. Not it's all for about five years, Marjorie. No, well, I, I was getting was, to that. I think, look, Romney voted to impeach him. I don't think that's I think true. that's the case where I, Romney's one that I think you like. Look, the guy voted to impeach him. If he didn't want to talk, maybe he really didn't want to talk. <laughs> right. Like that's one of yeah. those cases. If anybody's earned the benefit of the doubt right now, you would say Romney does given that he did vote to impeach the guy. He did. He, he did. You can't, say, you can't say he did. He voted to oust the guy from office. So you can't say that he hasn't uh, spoken about whether he believes the guy's fit for office. He already said so. He already said he is. So, Chuck Todd, it seems to me that the people who uh, have most concern after Keith Ellison uh, decided mm-hmm. to uh, elevate the charges against the cop Chauvin with his knee on George Floyd's neck and obviously charged the three other cops for the first time. The people who are now feeling most pressure are legislators, both on Capitol Hill and in 50 capitals, because now the whole notion of criminal, I guess, criminal justice reform, police reform is in their hands. Uh, we've heard a lot of proposals yesterday. Uh, guy, Ed Markey from our state with uh, Cory Booker and I think Kamala Harris talked about getting rid of qualified immunity for cops, which mm-hmm. uh, insulates them from being sued and having personal liability mm-hmm. from uh, uh, for use of right. excessive force. Is anything going to happen other than, you know, here and there? I, or I mean, it's a lot of pressure on these people. It is. I, I suspect you will. I mean, I think the way to the way to get the depends on your strategy. I mean, I, I, I would 
council to do the uh, to, to break this up into pieces um you know whether it's banning on chokeholds the qualified immunity i think you do this piecemeal because these are going to be difficult coalitions to build mm-hmm. in order to get these things passed um and in fact how you do it so for instance if you look at what some um the current bill in the house to ban chokeholds and the one i think in the senate kirsten Gillibrand, it would criminalize the practice mm-hmm. now there was there's some argument claire mccaskill was uh, on uh, on one of one of my hours yesterday and we were talking about this and she said well there's two ways you could do this one is you could try to you know criminalize it she said and she believes that's a much harder a it's going to be much harder to actually you know bring charges number one but two she didn't think that can pass the senate republican senate mm-hmm. she said but if you did it as a funding withheld basically you did it as a coercion piece of legislation which means you know you don't get federal funding for your law for your for your police force if you don't ban chokeholds right so you're not doing the ban but you're making them ban it um which is a lot of times you know for instance you know how did they raise the drinking you know how did they get states to raise the drinking age from 18 to 21 remember highway funds funds. exactly so it's a similar type of way is 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 sort of funding coercion Mm. and you know good old claire mccaskill who knew how to get legislation passed from you know red missouri right as a democrat you got to figure out how to navigate that stuff that seemed to be you know she was implying you do it that way you might have a shot at getting it happening now right to get it done now and so a lot of it will be tact you know how what kind of tactics are used in different legislatures do you go for a symbolic messaging bill that loses in order to have a wedge issue in the fall or do you try to do some piecemeal and you see what you can get done look in the republican senate there are going to be a handful of allies on this for some police reform folks, including people like Rand Paul. Mm-hmm. Rand Paul, Mike Lee have both been outspoken against the, the, the you know, uh, against military, you know, basically getting, giving military equipment to local law enforcement. I mean, Rand Paul's been one of the biggest critics of that program. Um, and so you can find an interesting left-right libertarian coalition um, on some of these reforms if you're tactical about it. You know, Chuck Todd, one more quick thing before you go. Um, We haven't heard much about what's happening on the financial rescue, the COVID-19 Congress, uh, the fourth bill, I guess it's number four, with continued economic disaster and problems Mm -hmm. with the paycheck protection, problems with the unemployment. Where do we see tomorrow? Where do we see tomorrow's unemployment numbers? And then then where do you see suddenly uh, a Congress realizing they got to get their act together? Yeah, will so will they get their act together? I don't know, but I think when um, we had another two million filed a day, I saw a Washington Post headline. You know, oh, just one point nine. You know, it's an indication that the bottom is here, and you're like, just one, one, just one point nine. The highest all time before the pandemic for any given week of unemployment claims was six hundred thousand. That's a great. So the fact that three times the all time high is considered good news means we're not out of the woods. Anyway, tomorrow's unemployment rate. I, you know, it's like, it may be over 20, right? It may be one of these just, you know, and I don't know if anybody's, li- I think we're also beaten up right now. I don't know if anything can shock us anymore, right? We are just like a, we're like a bat. I feel like a battered nation, right? We're like a boxer. Yeah. That's been through yes. like a 10th or 11th round. We're <laughs> bloodied. We're like, how much more can we take? But I, I think a 20 to 25% unemployment rate in this country uh, a 40%, you know, somewhere between a 30, you know, a 30% unemployment rate among black America. I mean, 
I, I just think that tomorrow's numbers are going to, if they don't scare the bejesus out of members of Congress, then we should vote them all out. I mean, but I got to think they're going to, they're, it's going to suddenly motivate them to like, um, you better get something going here before the 4th of July. You know, Chuck, there's before you go, there's never, there's no sports to ever talk about anymore. But did you guys, both of you see that a horse named Fauci came in second in a race at Belmont <laughs> yesterday? <laughs> Is that right? Well, he, yeah. well that's good that he, so it paid. It paid. It, it paid, oh, correct. A bit of good news. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, sort of. Second place. Hey, you know, yeah. It's like when you got the Monopoly you know card that said you won 10 bucks for finishing second place at a beauty contest. You're like, second place? <laughs> You know, Chuck, I think you, you characterize it perfectly. That's what it feels like. You're like a battered nation. You know, it's, it's yeah, no, kind I of feel like, like just... this is what, yeah. We're, we've been yeah. hit everywhere, right? The stomach, the head, yeah. our nose is bloodied. Oh. Well, this okay. is a pleasure. Six more, six more months. <laughs> six more months. Six more months. Okay. Well, hey, Chuck, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Chuck Todd, thank you very, very much. I always love to talk to you. Thanks so much. Bye, Chuck guys. Todd is moderator. Bye-bye. Chuck is moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Coming up, we're opening the lines and asking you, is Trump using the military to prove his manhood and alienating them along the way? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley and Marjorie Higgins. If you're just tuning in, we were talking to Chuck Todd about how former Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and other military leaders are closing ranks against Donald Trump for trying to turn Americans against each other. In a statement published by The Atlantic, Mattis is clearly horrified by Trump's threat to deploy the military against U.S. civilians. Here's part of what he wrote. When I joined the military some 50 years ago, I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution. Never did I dream the troops taking that same oath would be ordered under any circumstances to violate the constitutional rights of their fellow citizens, much less to provide a bizarre photo op for the elected commander-in-chief with military leadership standing alongside. So as a militaristic president, it's not promising that Trump's alarming, offending, and apparently alienating military generals he so admires. As commander-in-chief, is he betraying the, the total lack of understanding of the military's purpose, mission, and the men and women who serve? The number is 877-301-8970. What message does the military's lack of confidence in the president send to other nations? What message does it send to you? And as we said a day or two ago, if you're in the military, we'd love to hear from you at 877-301-8970. Now, Marjorie, when I just asked what message does it send to other nations— have you seen the video of Justin Trudeau being asked? I oh, think it was yesterday. Asked about Trump? He's being yeah, asked he yesterday. To, yeah. If people haven't seen it about uh, uh, Trump's engaging in the military, tear gassing his own people. And if you haven't watched this, we'd play it, but it doesn't translate. He pauses for 21 seconds on television before he's able to come up with an answer to the question. And he basically says that. Uh, He's horrified by what he's seeing. He doesn't call out Trump by name, but it's pretty clear he's what he's talking about. You know, one other preliminary thing uh, before we get to calls what? and your thoughts. We were talking about Ron Johnson a couple of minutes ago, who's the Republican from Wisconsin chair of the 
Homeland Security Committee, and we mentioned that, uh, what's the name of the reporter from NBC who asked all those Republicans? Casey Hunt. Casey Hunt. Casey Hunt. When he was asked, he said, up, oh, didn't really see it, <laughs> meaning the day after he hadn't seen what everybody in America was talking about. You know what he did in the last hour or so? His what? Homeland Security Committee is, gave him subpoena power not to bring people in to talk about tear-gassing American people, not to bring it in to talk about police brutality or racism in this country. They gave him subpoena power to bring in Obama officials to investigate the FBI's looking into election interference and the prosecution of Michael Flynn. It is like it is literally like we are in different universes. It, there is no shame whatsoever. I'll tell you. 877-301-8970. You know, people, uh, uh, remember we used to talk about the fairness doctrine sometimes, the rule that used to say that you had to give equal time to equal mm-hmm. sides yep. on broadcast stations. I'm beginning to wonder, Jim, <laughs> Maybe time. Of course, I suppose it wouldn't matter now with the internet because everybody could go to their own uh, outpost there too. But it just seems uh, like we've. It, it just. It is like two different different worlds, different universes. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is the number. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. I must admit, when I uh, heard what uh, Jim Mattis had, had written, I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled, as I said to Chuck Todd, that he had. Uh, called out the president, and I was absolutely thrilled that other people have joined with that because um, you, you do have the right to peacefully protest in the United States of America, and they're trying to lie about what he did. I mean, Kay- Kaylee McEnany gets up there and says, we didn't you know, use tear gas. And the reporter is saying, well, we were there, and we felt it in our lungs and on our, in our, on our faces, and they just continued to, to lie. It's Alternative just crazy. truth, as Kellyanne Conway once said. Wasn't that to Chuck Todd that she said that? Actually, it was. She said they were alternative facts. Alternative facts. I'm sorry. They were right. facts. Right. And she said, they, well, they were alternative facts. He tried to say, no, it's either a fact or it's not a fact. Anyway, uh, Brendan in Boston, thank you for calling. Hello, Brendan. Hey, Jim and Marjorie. Hope you're doing well in these maddening times. As uh, well uh, as yeah. can be. What's up? Yeah, exactly. Same here. Uh, I figured I'd call in and give you an update. We've talked about this in the past. You know, I'm a I'm a staunch Democrat. My brother, God bless him, I love him, is a staunch Trump supporter. He's the guy Trump could have shot on Fifth Avenue and not lost his vote, mm-hmm. um, I think, as I've described in the past. And so a um, little disconcerting response to the Mattis stuff. He's a former Marine as well. He's a longtime, you know, uh, proud admirer of, of Mad Dog, as he calls him. And uh, he is sticking with Trump 150%. He thinks Mad Dog has been co-opted by the deep state and the deep state runs deep and they're all trying to get Trump. And so he hasn't moved an inch. Uh, that's my update. Uh, well, wait, Brendan, but Brendan, it, it's one thing if if there's an outlier and there's only Mattis, I can understand how you try to convince one tries to convince oneself that he doesn't really represent anything. Maybe he's a disgruntled former Trump official. But as Marjorie, when she was doing the list at the top of our interview with Chuck Todd, how does your brother respond to the fact that it's not just him? It's not just the former Secretary of Defense. It's the current Secretary of Defense, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, former uh, Pentagon officials. I mean, this is a a grow. I don't know if I can call it a movement, but it is clearly a growing chorus of military leaders who are pulled by the behavior of the president. I don't think it moves them that much. I mean, you know, I, I haven't we've we've been mostly uh, battling each other via text over the last 24 hours, particular particularly on Mad Dog Mattis here. 
as he calls them. Um, you know, I think he's his feeling is that, and it's you know, it's a warranted feeling in some ways that the system is so broken mm-hmm. that Trump was this guy who was going to come in and blow it up. Disruptor, and he's sure. Still that guy, right? And he's he has blown it up in uh, pretty damaging ways, right? Um, the one good news I'll share is my brother has told me that if you know if we had, he, he's not close-minded to thinking about a different candidate, which is definitely a huge change of pace over the course of the last four years here in terms of his thinking. But you know, it's not going to be Joe Biden. You would like to see a, you know maybe a primary challenger um, or an independent candidate. But then once we actually start talking about that, he just you know gets right back to his guns on Trump and how great he is. So uh, that being said, my, my so, uncle's a big Marine, uh, former Marine as well. And he's, you know, he's a hundred percent aligned with, with the leaders on this. And it, that's important. And I hope my brother is an outlier. Brendan, you know, Brendan, one always. of the things, just one quick thing, one oh, quick sorry. thing, we don't need to put you on the spot as the person explaining the, the, the Trump supporter at this stage, but I do wonder um, how your brother would explain the presence total ignoring the systemic racism that that's led to all this i mean at at this point you almost have to say if you're with trump then you are a racist how does he explain that that's That's yeah that's the same exact argument i've been having with him now for the last uh for more than just you know the last uh tumultuous couple weeks for a long long time and you know he he acknowledges it exists you know he's you know, he was horrified by by the murder of George Floyd and, you know, texted me right away when he saw it and said it was gruesome. And he hopes these guys get the get the maximum punishment, all four of them. Um, but, you know, I think in his mind and I think, you know, frankly, it's it's white privilege. Right. I just don't think he associates that with the impact yeah. on his life um, as much as he should. Right. And uh, he's yeah. my brother. I love him. He's dead wrong. But uh, we got to keep talking to each other. Or whatever. Brendan. Thanks. Keep talking. I know. We appreciate Keep talking to us. Brendan, that things. was a great call because I think it explains the dilemma that in so many families and so many friendships and sometimes even in, uh, you know, girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands and wives, people can't understand where the other person is coming from. I did see where the uh, the wife of uh, uh, the cop that killed uh, Filed Floyd, for divorce. Yes. Not only filed for divorce, but wants her own name back. She wants oh, to get I didn't rid know of his that. name. Yeah, yeah. Well, you she know, Marjorie, can I, can I, you, you asked Brendan the question about racism. I, I, I think there's a different answer to the question. Trump is what? very careful in that six or seven minute statement he gave the other day before he walked over to the church. The first minute he condemned the killing of George Floyd. So he's his supporters are able to say, I'm with the president. What happened to George Floyd is horrible. He never steps back and talks about systemic racism or police brutality. But he's able to hang his hat on that one statement or those kinds of statements. And his supporters are able to hang their hat on there, too. And the response is, we're not racist. We condemn what happened to George Floyd, too. Throw the book at those four cops. Well, I guess. But the but the problem is that this is this is just the latest example of this. I agree. I'm, you know, and so I guess I, that's a pretty thin read to say. But it's you know, a read. Because the president never mentioned why people are protesting. Yeah. Never mentioned that. And and I think that's kind of the, the, the problem. Anyway, Nancy from Shrewsbury. Hi, Nancy. Hello, Nancy. Hi there. How are you? Good. Good. Hi. I just wanted to say um, two things. One, I'm a retired Army officer for 30 years that I mm. served active duty. Um, the other thing is, is I grew up in Kent, Ohio. So the other day when people were talking about Kent State, um, my mother was escorted by armed guards out of Kent 
Um, we were rushed to buses to get out of our school um, under armed guard. And uh, so that whole thing about 18 and 19-year-old kids um, being put there to do what security, and then one wrong thing happens, and that's how Kent State happens. But what I wanted to really say was um, I'm on a mentorship page still on Facebook with young Army officers, and I just feel good about the fact that these young officers are talking about how they feel and what dilemma they are in when they stand for the protesters, when they stand for Black Lives Matter. And they are very, very, very thoughtful about what are they going to do. And what are they going to do? What are, if, do things. Well, they're... there's a lot of discussion. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about um, how how. So they are talking to their senior leaders um, so that they can have an open dialogue about if we don't want to participate in anything like this, what are, what's going to happen to us? Because they don't want to participate. Mm. They don't want to go out and be armed guards for the in in any in any city or state. They don't want to be forced to um, uh, be in a position where they're um, not able to stand up for what they believe in. So, Nancy, what do you as someone who spent? I assume most of your adult life in the military, what's your reaction to what the president's doing and the response he's getting from people like Mattis? Well, I stand by uh, Mattis. I stand by General Dempsey. I stand by all the other generals that are speaking out against him. I'm totally appalled that he would uh, use the military. Uh, I see it, you know, he says, people are saying that it's because people were concerned about, oh, that he was bunkered down. Well, I see this as more cowardice, more cowardly. I don't think going to the bunker was cowardly. I think being doing what he did the other night is cowardly to, to try to get people to think that he has such control and that he can just be such a bully. Nancy, thanks for uh, everything. Thank you for your call. You know, I don't know. If we've mentioned the latest story that the president's told is that he went to the bunker to do an inspection. He was right, inspection. He didn't go there. <laughs> right. You know, and he brought, I guess he brought Melania and Barron along for the inspection. <laughs> I guess he just happened to pick this particular moment to do the inspection when things were heating up outside the White House. Uh, who, who buys that? Well, by the way, I, you I know pe- that, that, that <laughs> reporters who have decent sources in the White House said, Right after the uh, photo op thing, that that the clearing out of the protest, yes, and the photo op was totally because Trump was humiliated by the reporting that suggested he was scared and was hot. By the way, you know, if it turns out, uh, I don't know if it was him asking or Secret Service directing. If Secret Service says we want to keep the president, you know, speaking of, I was about to say, and the vice president. Where is Mike Pence? Where is Pence? I don't know. I don't know. You know, you, you wondered if he's, uh, if he, his aide had coronavirus. I have no idea if maybe ago, he's quarantining for that or, or maybe he's not feeling well. I don't know, but he has been uh, absent. Um, maybe he and mother, as he calls his wife, are on a vacation, do you think? Maybe I, they I need a break. they're on vacation, but he hasn't been <laughs> omnipresent. And if I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Marjorie, because the, the days what? move so quickly. He did not make the stroll across the street. He no. Did not, right? Well, I, I, if no, he, he did, did I didn't see he him. He didn't. He didn't. Okay. M- uh, Matt on the road. Thank you for calling. Hi, Matt. 
Hi, guys. How are you? Good. Uh, I heard you guys talking a little bit earlier about uh, why the current generals and admiralty aren't um, speaking up on it. And mm-hmm. I can shed some light on that. I am. I served nine years as an Army enlistment and the past six years as a Navy officer. Mm-hmm. Um, we are confined to something called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Article 88 under that code prohibits us from making statements against an elected or non-elected public official. So it's actually strictly illegal for the, the admiralty for the generals to speak out against an acting or sitting official. Well, can I ask you, Matt, well, let me read to you the first line from uh, the, the statement of uh, General Matt. Well, I don't know if it's the first line. It's the first line I read. When I joined the military some 50 years ago, I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution. If a military leader under what you just described is asked to participate in an act that is violative of the Constitution in his or her perception, what is he or she permitted to do? Are they permitted to refuse that order? You are permitted to refuse the order, but it has to be proven that the order is unlawful. Mm-hmm. So if, as long as the order is lawful, the, uh, you, have to, you have to follow the orders. That's, that's part of what you sign up for. What would you do if you were asked to? What would you do if you were asked to do something you felt was violative of the First Amendment rights of fellow citizens of this country? That's not. It's not lawful to violate the Constitution, is it? No, he's You're not saying lawyer, it was. Jim. No, no, no. Oh, okay. Well, 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 clear because what would you it was do if unlawful. You were in that circumstance? First and foremost, I mean, I am an American, and I do support people's constitutional rights, whether or not. And it, and it doesn't matter whether or not you agree with it or not. Uh, but you have to prove, like, definitively that you are given an unlawful order to follow. And that's very tricky within the, uh, within the, the network of the military, uh, just as it is for any public official. Um, it's even more restrictive for people serving. Matt, can I ask you one last thing, which is a variation on a theme? It's not precisely what you're describing how did you feel about Crozier on, what was it called, the Roosevelt, when he decided to go outside the chain of command to protect the health of hundreds or more than a thousand of his men and women on that ship? Um, I think I would have done the same thing. Hmm. Glad to hear it. Matt, thank you very much for your call. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're talking about President Trump and how he's alienating military leaders. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about former Defense Secretary James Mattis, who in The Atlantic condemns President Trump for trying to turn Americans against each other and for threatening to use the military to violate protesters' constitutional rights. And he's not alone in terms of uh, military leadership taking that position. We're taking your calls asking you if this is a turning point in the Trump presidency and provoking the outrage of many top military officials as Trump reached a point of no return. The number is 877-301-8970. Marjorie, did you mention yesterday, I can't remember, or if it was just you and I talking off the air, about this uh, poll that came out yesterday showing that by a more than two-to-one margin, the American people support the protesters and their cause? Yeah, 64%. To 27. That's That's huge, actually. 
It, it, well, it, it is huge. And, and I think, as we've said a million times, I mean, kids growing up today that are 15 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old have grown up very differently um, mm-hmm. in a lot of places. Certainly my kids have grown up very differently than, than I did. And I think that they have um, a different view of race relations and I yeah, but 65 great. to 27 or 64 to 27 is not just young people. That's a huge no, array it's not just young of people. the American people. It's really but I do think seeing, seeing protests on the streets of America that are half white, a quarter, I mean, uh, with all these white kids, I think it's the children of people who grew up very differently, their own children. I mean, you talk about your kids going to these mm-hmm. protests, my kids going to these protests. Um, it, 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 I think it, it changes people's views of, of protest. And well, I think wait a people second. I went see... to one or two when I was a kid, too, didn't you? Well, you went to pick up girls, Jim. You've told me <laughs> that. You've confessed. It was all about getting I was them. off the air, by the way. Thank you very, very much for retelling that tale. 877-301-8970. That is really sad. <laughs> Rob from Lemonster, thank you for calling. Hi, Rob. Hey, guys. Uh, I already know how you're doing because you said you were doing well three times now, so I want to ask. But, um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, Jim, Jim, I have to say, at Easter, I was able to one-up all my siblings because you follow me on Twitter, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, thank you big time. I am happy to be of service. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, guys. I, uh, the, initial, the initial topic that prompted me to call in was uh, when Jim said, uh, what message? what message is being sent here and um, a little bit about me. My wife is uh, Nicaraguan. I have a 13 year old stepson, both from Nicaragua and they moved here uh, with me two years ago and they uh, essentially escaped, um, you know, Ortega because they were at protests, people were being shot and, you know, they've lived through as their first two years in America. I said, you know, Trump's not the best president, but you know, at least you'll be able to be here and be free. And uh, I sold out on the American dream. And now, They've lived through him at Pensacola rally saying that you should shoot immigrants to uh, Latin Americans getting killed in Texas, mass shootings all over the country, uh, a pandemic, and now this. And when we were watching the protests uh, in D.C. when Trump moved peaceful protests, as we all know, just to take a photo op of the Bible, my wife looked at me and she said, can they shoot people here? That's what she said. And it was in, it was just. The, the saddest moment, you know, she just looked at me and said, can they shoot people here? Uh, because that's what she had lived through. And, and we've had to stop watching the news. It's a, they live through a very traumatic experience. And uh, it's just sad. The America that you grow up idolizing, you know, yeah. looking at it like this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. And now for a president to be one inch tall and do things like this, is just, it's disgusting. Hey, Rob. And I'm embarrassed for, for myself, you know? Rob, beyond yeah. what your wife's uh, questions are, how's your 13-year-old stepkid taking all this? Yeah, I mean, so he can speak. We're losing you. Very, very good. Very good. But Can you say the first half of that sentence again? School. I didn't hear it. Say it one more time. I'm sorry. So when he first moved here, he didn't speak any English, right? Um, hmm. He did his first year at Lexington Public Schools. They did a great job with their ESL program. Uh, and he's now, you know, he's learned a lot, but he's basically missed an entire year of school due to the pandemic. And when it comes to just like social injustice and seeing things like that, I mean, he's lived through the trauma of when he was 12 years old, 11 years old, um, growing up during, you know, a pretty violent time in Nicaragua's history. 
Um, and then I remember I was watching that rally because I, I don't want him to watch what other people say about the president. I want him to form his own opinion. I have him watch his rallies and I have him watch mm-hmm. what comes out of his mouth. And I remember uh, 12, he was 12 at the time. He looked at me uh, and he just said, is he serious? When he at that Pensacola rally, when he says, well, you can get away with that in Pensacola, you know, um, or in the panhandle when he was talking about shooting immigrants. I mean, it's just I can't imagine being him. Uh, I mean, I do my best to talk to him. These are very adult conversations that have to be talked to. And I'm, listen, I'm 29 years old. You know, I, I'm just figuring out a lot of things. And to be able to have these conversations with a 13-year-old and, uh, you know, he's a smart kid and he's extremely tough. He's uh, mm. he's resilient. He's been through so much. I, it's It's heartbreaking, honestly. Rob, can I tell you, you're 29, I'm 129, and I'm still trying to figure out a lot of things about what's going on in this country now. Rob, thanks for your call. Hey, Rob, that uh, was a great call. Easter was fun. Thank you. Well, you know, one of the things Mattis alluded to in his um, talk about being upset about the present was the immaturity of, of Donald yeah. Trump. and He worked alongside him, and it does kind of get at that mental health issue with him. You know what's what's going on that you're so. I mean, he's the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and there's an incredible insecurity there. Nonetheless, it's it's an odd thing. Well, you know, you know it, I mean? it's it's interesting you say that uh, because this gets back to my same old tired theme. I wasn't going to bring it up again because I did with Chuck, and I know people are tired of this. In that statement, he says, "I've seen it for three years." He was there for part of that three years. Yeah. And again, it gets back to the same question that you and I have been debating. You broach it with Chuck today, which is what's the best thing for people to do when Mattis is inside and sees a leader who he think is incapable, unfit to lead the American people. This is him talking, not me. Yeah. Unfit. Is it better, as you suggest, that he stay in there and control his worst impulses? I don't know. Or stand up and in his resignation statement say, I'm leaving because I can't serve this kind of leader. I would say as, as celebrated as Mattis is being for what he said yesterday, that was, a, what was it, a year and a half after he left the White House? If he's so concerned about the leadership of the President of the United States, maybe he should have spoken before but I uh, guess, uh, the, the thing I guess the other day. Some people, including myself, are so worried about what our president is capable of doing. I, I would rather have someone who can be some kind of stopgap there. I mean, d- remember during Watergate, because the the people around President Nixon were so worried that he was drinking too much, that he was getting drunk at night, that they uh, took measures to prevent his starting a nuclear war without permission from, yeah, uh, from went to jail other people. Too. Well, but but these are the generals that were around him. Oh, I'm not, sorry. not the Watergate burglars or any of those okay. people. Well, not, Haldeman or and those not, not Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Not Haldeman and Ehrlichman. No, and and. So I am I am worried about what he's capable of, and I would rather have some people, because obviously the Attorney General Barr has has lost all, you know, taken leave of planet Earth, so you want somebody around him that can stop him. And He's the only general who's still on his side, Marjorie, I think. <laughs> you know, let's take a few more Well, there's, there's Esper. He's still there. He's running the Defense Department, so, uh, but he'll probably be fired Well, he's soon. not a Jay's a civilian guy. But, but well, he's, he's a civilian, right, he but he's a military secretary. guy. Yeah. Uh, Mary Lee from Plymouth. Hi, Mary Lee. Hi, Mary Lee. Hi, it's so nice to join you. I well, love thank the you. show. Thanks. Um, I, I have a 31-year-old son who lives in Washington, D.C., and he survived, but he was 
on a ventilator for 13 days with COVID-19. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. Healthy young man with no, as they would say, comorbidities Mm. um, in the best shape of his life. But anyway, that's not why I'm calling. That explains why I was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend. And I was about to drive home on Monday afternoon. And I thought, I can't do it without stopping by to support the protest. Mm. And so I pulled up. I parked about a quarter of a mile from the White House. And I just, I just want to witness the unbelievable warmth and wonderfulness of the people demonstrating. What I saw was hundreds of people, more than half of them were white. Most of, it was split between the older hippies. <laughs> I'm, I'll be 16 a couple weeks. <laughs> I was birthday. the youngest of the oldest. Thank you. And, uh, and a lot of younger kids in their 20s and 30s, many of them pushing baby strollers with their children. Um, and as I was driving back to Plymouth, Mass., um, I heard what happened when they moved on this same group of people at 6.30. So I just wanted to, just, you know, as, as an eyewitness of kind of two weird things going on right now. <laughs> Mary Lee, I wanted by the to way, we're really glad to share that, but don't go away. How is your, we've heard some troubling post-ventilator stories. How is your son doing? Uh, very luckily, he's he's doing well. Great. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're all concerned because who knows? This is, we're just scratching the surface of what this virus does to people. And, you know, he was in the best shape of his life and, and he, you know, he lost about 20, 30 pounds. He's like, Mom, I lost so much weight. And I said, you know what? If you weren't in the best shape of your life and if you didn't have that extra weight on you, we wouldn't probably be talking now. So, mm. um, yeah. So let's all take this very seriously. Mary Lee, thanks for all of it that, that you yeah, said. Yeah, really and good luck to your son, Mary Lee. Son, That's yeah. a very scary, very scary Boy, story. It is scary. Yeah, There's so much. By I you know. what's particularly scary about that, by the way, when I'm we not were, in the we best shape of my life. Are you? Well, no. Well, I've never been in the best shape of my life, so it doesn't <laughs> matter what you know. But but we were talking yesterday about the whole notion of the the COVID nineteen risk by the demonstrators, and I think we came out on the side that the demonstrations and protests are so important that hopefully you wear a mask and do what you can. Uh, there's a perfectly healthy young man, as Mayor Lee said, her son in the best shape of his life, young. And he sort of fits the profile of the average demonstrator we've seen, which shows the, the risk. When Paul Farmer, uh, Dr. Paul Farmer yes, is going to join us at 1 o'clock to talk about uh, contact tracing, which Partners in Health, which he co-founded, is, is obviously leading. And he's obviously done incredible things all over the world, uh, Farmer and Partners in Health. We should ask him about that. Uh, you know, How do you contact trace uh, tens of thousands of people if there are some, and there will be, who come out of that with uh, testing positive for COVID-19. That must be a hard show. Yeah, the only th- we talked about this yesterday. The, the, the one thing you hope you can hang your hat on is that these protests are outside, that people are yeah, moving around. They're not next, necessarily next to someone mm-hmm. for 15 or 20 minutes. So I'm hoping that that's going to save a lot of people from, pa- from passing on the virus. But you just don't know. We're going to have to wait weeks till we, till we find out. And by the um, way, we should say we're going to continue to take phone calls post-Andrea Cabral in the 1230 range. 
Yes, we are. But coming up, right after the news, we are going to speak to former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Cabral. She joins us for this week's edition of Law and Order with the latest developments surrounding the death of George Floyd, the new charges uh, involving the cops uh, who were seen on that video. Andrew Cabral is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Derek Chauvin will not be the only one to face trial for the death of George Floyd. After a week of protests, demonstrations in every state in the nation, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison has upgraded Chauvin's charge from third to second degree murder and says the officers who watched were accomplices. Ellison says that a prosecution can't rectify the hurt and anguish people have felt in the last week, but is it a paradigm shift in how the justice system treats its own? In a few minutes, we'll ask Andrea Cabral. Contact tracing is the name of the game we need to win if we want to beat the coronavirus and get life back to normal. Ushering in the nation's first national contact tracing system, Governor Charlie Baker said this could be the key to reopening our economy. Teaming up with partners in health, the state is deploying hundreds of tracers to catch the coronavirus before we hope it catches all. All of us. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Dr. Paul Farmer, who knows all about this. That and more is ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. He is Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. You know, we were told before we get started, we were talking about these military leaders standing up. I had not heard what uh, retired Navy Admiral James Stavridis, who was at the Fletcher School at Tufts for a while there, running it. Did you just hear his line on the uh, uh, NPR News? We cannot afford to have a future Lafayette Square end up looking like Tiananmen Square. I mean, Jesus, this is really... In any case... Some people have been very badly hurt by these rubber bullets. There was a reporter that lost her eye. She can no longer use her eye. And there was a young man who suffered brain damage at you know, a peaceful protest being hit by the, the, their... Well, but there's good uh, news, Marjorie. The press secretary said that there were no rubber bullets in Lafayette Square, <laughs> even though we saw the rubber bullets, but apparently we can't believe our eyes. Well, uh, she, moving <laughs> along. <laughs> What's that? And she also compared the president to Winston Churchill. Yeah, Okay. So, uh, as we all know, the uh, Minnesota, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison charged three more former cops in the death of George Floyd yesterday, and charges against Derek Chauvin have been upgraded to second-degree murder. Have these protests helped to bend the arc of the moral universe a little closer to justice or not? Andrew Cabral joins us in the line to talk about this, how a powerful police union could have contributed to Floyd's death and more. Andrew Cabral is the former Suffolk County Sheriff, former Secretary of Public Safety, and she's now the CEO of Ascend. Andrea, good to talk to you. How are you? Good. I mean, good. Well, good we're enough. okay. Yeah, relatively How are you? Speaking. Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, speaking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jim just mentioned that the uh, charges against Derek Chauvin have been up from third-degree murder to second-degree murder, and the other three officers that were there have been... Uh, charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. What do you think? Well, I, think it's, I think it's entirely appropriate. Um, 
you know, the, certainly there was a call for first-degree murder charges, um, but, you know, you have to analyze what it is that you, uh, you think you can prove going forward. I think I do have confidence that um, Keith Ellison undertook that analysis uh, very carefully, but there's absolutely no question um, that uh, the other three officers uh, should be charged. I mean, it's, it, it literally is a matter of watching the video. Um, it's really that simple. And um, the fact that we, we certainly know that at least one officer said, you know, shouldn't we roll him over? And yeah. uh, Chauvin said, no, 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 just, you know, leave him where he is kind of thing. And no one forcibly pulled him away. Um, you know, it, it tells you everything you need to know. So, yes, I think it's in, in a nutshell, it's, it, the charges are, are, are appropriate. You know, well, I'm sorry, Marjorie. Go oh, ahead. go ahead, Jim. Well, you know, it's, it's going to move on to same thing we talked about with uh, with you know Chuck Todd this morning. I I want to say this carefully. It's almost like the charging of the four cops is the easy part in terms of a response to what is being demanded by hundreds of thousands, by millions and millions of people in this country. The reform part is the harder part. And last night I had Ed Markey on with me uh, on television, and he and uh, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris filed this uh, bill to end qualified uh, immunity for cops, which basically insulates them from suit uh, and personal liability, even if they've used excessive force. But what are the kinds of things that not only you think should have? I mean, I'm talking to somebody who's worked with cops in virtually every job you've had from assistant DA to the ones I mentioned a few minutes ago. What What are the kinds of reforms that in your estimation, let's just take Beacon Hill, that a, a, a legislature would have the, the strength, the courage to, uh, uh, to do in the face of very strong police unions. There's an, one last thing. There's an editorial on The Globe today suggesting yep. one of the most important things that could be done is the state legislature and state legislatures across the country uh, pass laws saying, of course, you can bargain, your unions can bargain over wages and benefits and working conditions, but uh, cop unions, police unions should no longer be able to negotiate over disciplinary procedures. Where are, where are you on that? And where are you on these other reforms that are being talked about, Andrew Cabral? I think you have to start from the standpoint of recognizing how deeply, deeply entrenched this is. Um, particularly in law enforcement, but certainly not only in law enforcement. So essentially what you have are um, black people saying, stop killing us, and the institutional response being not so fast. So you start from something as unequivocal as stop killing us, where, where the answer to that should be, well, of course. Well, you know, I can't believe this has been happening all this time. And the response is, hey, wait a minute. There still should be a basis on which this happens. So when you think of it that way, it really, you really recognize how insane it is. And you have to really understand how, how, this is, how the power structure is perceived. So these, these protests are looked at um, as um, you know, mini-revolutions or... Um, insurrections of some kind. And that is because the fundamental belief that the right to decide who gets what rights, the right to decide who lives or dies, is vested in 
white males in particular, that they understand this as a matter of right in this country. That's why everyone else has to ask permission to exercise their rights. So you really, we really need to think about the genesis of this when we start talking about um, how these things get negotiated and why there's so much delay. It is deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched. Now, that said, unions, and I come from a family of, of union people. My father was a steel worker for 26 years. Unions in their genesis, in their creation, are good things. Over time, they develop power by, in my, in my view, the failure of executive management when it comes to something like a, a, a police union to hold the line. There are things in police contracts that, to your point, have absolutely nothing to do with the bargaining over wages and the fundamental things that most unions bargain for. And also, let's keep in mind, the power that accrues to a police union is nothing like the lack of power that accrues to a hotel workers' union. Those are not the same right. contracts. They are not the not same the unions. Same. And what's bad about the layers of power that get, they get layered in like concrete. So every time there is a provision that someone allows to be put into a contract, they allow it because they don't want the pushback from the, from the police union, they allow it because they don't want uh, to have to negotiate in an election year. There are lots of reasons why there are failures of management to hold the line, and I've, I've seen it over the course of my career. Once that provision gets into the contract, it is nearly impossible to take out of the contract. So what these contracts are every year are incremental accruals that push further and further and further um, away from the basic things that a union contract should, uh, should uh, govern and further into um, things that accrue more power by virtue of that contract. Uh, and it's very complicated. That's a simplified, you know, answer to your question. But, you know, what, where we are right now is they can be incredibly powerful. But I also want to say the idea that it is at the feet of unions that all police violence is happening is also um, not true because there are police departments, um, particularly in southern states, that aren't unionized at all, that are still having the same issues with excessive force and police brutality. So it's not because of a union, but when you look at that contract and the difficulty that's presented every time someone is, uh, needs to be disciplined and disciplined permanently, you find both the contract provisions and you go to an arbitrator. Uh, there are lots of different kinds of arbitrators who approach things very differently, and so you, there are lots of ways uh, for someone to not be disciplined properly. And then there's a lack of inverse pressure. Because unions are powerful, where I really think they go wrong is when they fail um, to call out the least among them, the ones that, that do create these problems, and there's no inverse pressure for these people to be fired or to be disciplined properly. They end up operating in a way that protects the worst among them, which is why an entire department gets tagged with the behavior of a certain number in the department, because they have a responsibility to internally to make sure that they're doing um, the job well and to call out those within their ranks that are not doing the job well, but there is no incentive to do that. You know, I just want to point out a couple of examples from a Washington Post story about police unions around the country talking about the lengths that they have in their contracts to protect officers who misbehave. 
the, the contracts can limit the amount of time an officer accused of misconduct, uh, misconduct can be interviewed. They can decide who interviews him, when the interview happens. In some places, like Houston and Louisville, uh, they can be wait up to 48 hours before the interview with the p- accused officer takes place, basically allowing everybody to get their story straight. I should add that Bill Evans, the former commissioner of police, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again, complained to us when he used to be on our show when he was commissioner that he has, that bad cops that he wanted to fire had been reinstated uh, through arbitration. That's right, that he did fire had been reinstated through arbitration. And I want to point to this this little line from the Globe's uh, editorial today, which points out that politicians, and I especially in our legislature i think this is this is true it, it, um that you know on the right that you know the, the the republican politicians talk about law and order all the time but um the the democrats are just as bad because they don't want to antagonize unions in general and the police union in particular so i'm very um i'm very i'm not hopeful about a change because i don't see how Democrats and Republicans are going to come together on this issue to change things, Andrea? Well, it's not even, uh, I agree with you that there is, <clears throat> that's why I was, you know, when I talk about a management failure in the negotiation of the contract, there's also political failure um, in calling for the kinds of reforms that are necessary. And so I, I completely agree with you there. Um, but, you know, I also think that if you're talking about um, a contract, you're going to have legal problems, is, is, in a nutshell is what I'm saying. So when you, you don't expect to be able to reform a police contract without there being pushback in terms of uh, a union filing suit. So you do pick your battles around things like this. And, you know, there's, a, there's the issue of past practice. So even if something is not a union a clause in a union contract. If you have been treating officers a certain way or you have observed uh, an unofficial policy or even an official policy that's not right, quite written in the contract, but it, it is the way you deal with uh, officers every single day, you're held to that as a past practice because you have, you have built an expectation that this is how the department will respond to certain things. When you go into court, you have to, you know, and you're trying to eradicate uh, some, some element of a contract or change it, you're, you've got to defend against all of that. You've got to, you know, the entire department essentially is on trial, and you see it when there are officers who've lost their jobs, and then you know there's a lawsuit filed to get it back. You see it in issues of training, um, who got training, how long that training lasted, whether or not that training was commensurate with standardized training, whether or not that particular officer uh, was trained the right way. I mean, it really drills down to the details. So yes, it is very difficult. Um, to achieve widespread reform in police contracts. That said, I don't know that it's even been attempted up till now yeah. um, uh, in a universal way. So, you know, I, until that happens, that we I don't really want to spend the whole know. time on this, but, you know, you mentioned your father had been in a union steelworks for three decades. I was president of a union that represented not cops, but lawyers, secretaries, and paralegals representing poor people in civil cases for a decade, and I negotiated hundreds of contracts for those workers. And I want to say a couple things about this is, you know, the first question is, does the state legislature have the power to statutorily say you can't negotiate about such and such a thing for 
uh, certain unions? The answer is probably yes. But the th- we're letting off the hook in this discussion. This is the, the debate Marjorie and I have had for years, Andrea, probably the 20 years we've been on the radio. Provisions that are in a contract, uh, uh, which are negotiated locally here and across the country, are there because some mayor, some city councilor, council, whatever the governing body, city manager, town manager of a community, said yes to. These police unions don't unilaterally have the power to say, here's what the discipline procedure is going to be. We're going to dictate that you can't interview a cop until 48 hours after the alleged offense. Let me finish, Marjorie. Until 48 hours after an alleged offense, uh, uh, as some contracts say, so they can get their stories straight. The point I'm trying to make is, I know what Marjorie's going to say, well, they have such power. If we're going to blame police unions for having provisions that protect bad cops, then you got to blame local officials who don't have the strength to stand up to these unions. All they have to say, Marjorie, is no... And then okay, these provisions all I'm gonna don't say, go in the contracts. Jim, at this juncture, in at this point in our history, when this is going on all across America, that argument is really a little bit old. Why? If police union member because if police union members don't have the moral fortitude at this stage of the game, when the racism in the system is obvious and seen every single day, to say we have to do the right thing. I'm not defending I mean, I'm them. Not gonna, I'm not defending well, them. you I'm, are defending no, them. No, I'm not. Blaming, I'm saying there are two okay. sides to this street. They don't unilaterally. I dictate don't think there are two sides. To the street. To the anymore. contract, there I are. Ju- yes, there are. Yes, well, there are. Well, I don't. I, okay, what's the side of the street that says the cops should get 48 hours to get a story straight? What is, what is the side? You know how what they is get that 48 hour provision in? Because a mayor in a city yes, says it's okay with me. But that's wrong. It is that's wrong. That's not a debate. It is wrong. So don't, I agree. Okay, okay. So that's, uh, I think tell, we have to agree that it's wrong. As someone who, who uh, started out her career in the sheriff's office with, I think, Nine, nine separate unions. It was five by the time I left. Um, part of how those provisions get put into place is in years where the uh, police department is asking for a certain percentage of uh, wage increase. I know Great that. point. I know wage that. increase. And so you, you have the fire department, which is always in competition with the police department in terms of you know, how much each gets. And in, in years when those numbers cannot be met because the fiscal situation doesn't allow it, that's when you see a lot of it. those provisions go yeah. in. Yeah. They get, that's when they're capitalized and they're agreed to because taxpayers are looking at the numbers. They're not looking at the details of the contract. They will feel the details of the contract and the consequences of those details at some point. At least certain segments of the population will, will live those consequences. But... When the budget is being negotiated, people are looking at the numbers. Paul just sent us. Paul just sent us an email and said, "Remember, there are nice people on both sides." It's <laughs> funny. <I'm not laughs> okay, <laughing>. let's <laughs> let's let's move on. Um, from you know, there's been a lot of interesting stuff written about. You've seen different uh, scenes around the country, Andrew Cabral, uh, where cops are taking a knee. We saw cops take a knee outside the Schroeder Police Headquarters in Boston. Um, some transit cops at Forest Hills. We've seen this around the country. And some people think that's great. It shows that there's a lot of cops that are in solidarity with the protesters. Others think that this is cops should not join these protests at all, and it's just a cynical ploy on their part, or it is a cop-out or whatever. Where do you come down on this? Cop-out, that's right. There is a a piece (laughs) in the appeal written by uh, a woman by the name of Derecka Purnell that is an absolutely beautifully written Opinion piece. Yeah. The headline is, Don't Let Cops Join Our Protests. And she lays out 
why it is not a desirable thing. And, you know, the, the piece is a little bit lengthy. I, I, you know, I can't go into all of it. But she, she is essentially saying that <clears throat> when you are protesting, you know, uh, centuries of police violence, do not be quick to um, take the fact that a police officer kneels in solidarity with you or even a group of police officers kneel in solidarity with you. Do not mistake that for actual change or reform, because history tells you that however sympathetic um, individuals or even small groups of police officers might be, nothing, you, history tells you nothing ever changes. And I really do encourage people to read this piece. It's in The Appeal. Her name is Dereka yeah, Purnell. Yeah, it's um, good. And, and I agree with um, what she writes, All, but, to the, but with one small exception. When I talk just now about inverse pressure from within police departments against members being willing to speak up against members, and I say this as someone who, who experienced that very thing, that inverse pressure when she was sheriff, of having officers for the first time take the witness stand and testify for the sheriff versus against the sheriff and against fellow officers. So I know how powerful this is. I understand her point that you know, when individuals kneel or a police chief kneels, that is not institutional change. And that once, that, once the, the march is over, you go back inside and things remain the same. But I do think that there is merit to the extent that individuals, particularly individuals who are lieutenants, captains, and supervisory positions or, you know, um, deputy superintendents, to the extent that they see this and they are sincere in their um, uh, alignment with what is what is being protested and against police brutality, some of them will take that back into that into headquarters. Some of them will take that back into the district station, and some of them will, you know, when the time comes for them to step up, they will step up. And those gains are important. And so that's the caveat to my overall point: is that what she wrote was beautifully written, and I agree with with her point, the points that she's making in in, in her piece. Can I tell you, I, I was really impressed by it, too, because I think I said on the air that uh, I was moved by the cops who were kneeling, even if the motivation was to provide calm rather than solidarity. I was, was it the Denver police chief who marched arm in arm with protests? I think it was the Denver police chief. But I have to say, she really makes a persuasive argument. But do you know who's on the other side of this argument, who is celebrating police involvement in the protests, Andrew Cabral? Who? I'm going to give you a clue. It is somebody you did not support for president in the primary in 2008. Do you know who that was? <laughs> where, where are you getting this from? Well, who it's what he said there? yesterday. This is what Barack oh, Obama said hall. yesterday. He was celebrating. Uh, Andrea was supporting Clinton, and I'm making fun of her because we used to fight about it in 2008 on the radio. Uh, Obama said yesterday, I don't know if he used the word celebrate, but he was speaking in a very positive way about uh, – uh, the involvement of supportive, at least what he believed to be supportive police officers in these uh, protests. But I agree with you, this woman's piece is really powerful. Uh, and it really, I think and it makes of, a, what's that? Part of what she's saying is, I don't think that she's saying that police officers shouldn't kneel. What she's saying is kneeling and however, whatever fills your heart in that moment doesn't help if you're not taking right, that right. And, and helping institutional right. change to happen. Yeah. And that's why just taking the kneeling yeah, at face right. value and welcoming saying, yeah. that in without an, without an additional demand 
for uh, institutional and policy change isn't worth um, the moment of solidarity. That's, I, think, I think that's her point. I don't want to put words in her mouth. You know, Andrea, getting back to the sort of the institutional change, well, not getting back to, you're just mentioning institutional change. We talked about reform of police contracts and this discussion about dumping qualified immunity uh, in the Presley uh, Omar resolution. There are call for all civilian review boards all over the country, uh, and that's which are very controversial with police unions, that sort of stuff. You know, it's. I think it was pretty obvious to me that Keith Ellison uh, was going to charge all four of these cops. I wasn't sure he was going to raise the charges against Chauvin, but I'm, I'm glad he did. It's a lot harder when you're protesting for policy changes. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and it, it, what's your, do you have worries about how it, you know, it's really, it's much, and I'm, believe me, I'm not suggesting what these protests have done is easy. It's been remarkable and so inspiring when the cause is really concrete and is in the hands of one person like Keith Ellison and can direct attention at him or her, whoever it is, it's one thing. When it's more sort of dispersed, I want my state legislature, I want my city council, I want my Congress to pass this reform or that reform, it gets a little stickier in a lot of ways. It isn't like there's going to be a vote somewhere amongst protesters. These are the three things that are universal demands. Do you worry about this dissipating despite how incredibly impressive the first week and a half have been since uh, Mr. Floyd was executed? Sure. I mean, to go back to the point that I made at the very top of the show, it requires people, people in state legislatures, people in federal legislatures, people in power everywhere, sheriffs, police officers, heads of corporations, Policy change on some level requires a, a fundamental acknowledgement of the level of um, institutional racism, the levels of white supremacy that are built into ev practically everything we do in the country. That, you know, to, to, for people to say, you know, I recognize that I've been benefiting from this, I recognize how it affects other people, obviously that's an elusive thing because it's a big, giant benefit to give up. And then you have to do the hard work of, of, of pushing through these changes. And it has, there's a re there are reasons it hasn't happened over all of these centuries. Um, and, you know, I, yes, I worry about it all the time. I mean, to your point, when I was sheriff, I was able to do things because sheriffs don't answer to governors. They don't answer to mayors. They answer to the voters. I was able to institute policy change in Suffolk County for the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department, and it damn near killed me. Um, those first six years, people will never know what it took to do that. And I was dealing with the basic entrenched system, the microcosm of that, that was present in the Suffolk County Sheriff's uh, Office. And, and it's very, very, very difficult to do, which is why you hear people of color saying to um, white people who, who say that they are allied with this, that's why, and why I say to you, actually, to, to both you and Marjorie, you have to have these conversations with other white people. You have to be willing to sit with uh, people who look like you and, and collectively come to the conclusion that these are necessary, important things to do. Until that happens, they're not going to get done on any kind of widespread scale. 
Andrew Cabral, we only have like 30 seconds left, so really quick, I just wanted to get this on the, the record here with you. Uh, the president has been blaming Antifa, Attorney General Barr has been blaming Antifa for the violence, and now we find out that the FBI uh, found no Antifa uh, trace in, in a lot of the violence that's been going on in, in, in D.C. Are you surprised about that? That the people they're more suspicious of are these people like the bungalow, bungalow boys, these armed Hawaiian shirt guys with their big weapons? <laughs> He's lying. I mean, that's the short answer to that is that he's lying, but he lies about everything, and he needs he needs a foil. I mean, this is just completely made up. It's yeah. complete nonsense, and why why we give any oxygen to it at all is utterly beyond me. And it is particularly appalling that Bill Barr um, gets up and parrots everything that he says and says that as the Attorney General um, of the United States. But he is lying. I mean, that should come as no surprise to anyone who's been conscious and breathing for the last three and a half years. You know, you said we have seconds, Mark. No, can I, can yes, I take we do. We're out of seconds? time. I know, but just very briefly. You just told me we were out of time, Jim. I'm sorry. You lied. You lied. You know, this Antifa thing is at the core of the rebellion that's happening within the New York Times. I don't know if people are reasoned about this. They published oh, yeah, this Tom op-ed Cotton, from the Tom senator. Cotton, the senator the, from is he Arkansas. Arkansas. Is that where he's from? I believe so. And in addition to supporting this military move by the president, and a lot of the people who work at the Times, reporters, opinion people, and others are upset about it. What they're doubly upset about is in his piece, he talks about Antifa's role in this. And as some of their own opinion people have tweeted and written, the New York Times' own reporting has contradicted the facts that they allowed to be published on their opinion page. May I just... Add is somebody who used to write a column. You have to put in where you got your information. Exactly. You just can't spout these things. And when he and when he has the Antifa thing, the 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 facts he cites is a statement from Attorney General Barr. That's what he I cites. I will, I th- I'll leave you with one thing. All you need to know about Tom Cotton. He's 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 odious, Jim. To to the to use your favorite word, Tom Cotton <laughs> held up the nomination of Cassandra Butts, who was one of uh, uh, Obama's nominees. Um, to the federal bench. He held it up until she died. She ended up, he held it up so long that she was diagnosed with cancer and she died. And oh. he was pleased about that once it happened. Tom Cotton is, is also a, a very dangerous. He's running unopposed, by the way. There's not even, not as unopposed as a Republican. He, there, there's no Democrat running against him in Arkansas. So there's no chance we're going to get rid of him, but he's a deeply dangerous human being. And the New York Times should never have published that column. Well, there's a price to pay for uh, Mr. Bennett, who's the op-ed editor. I think this could yeah. be a pr- Isn't he the brother, by the way, of, of Senator Bennett. Bennett? He was on our show a yes. lot of times, right? Yeah, from Colorado. Yes. Andrea, yes. thanks. Andrea, thank You're you welcome. very much. Andrea Cabral joins us every week for Law & Order. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety. She's now the CEO of Ascend. Coming up, we're going to open the lines and ask you, is peaceful protest too peaceful to be heard. This is 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Look, Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And when it comes to affecting change, does destruction serve a purpose? Do rioting and looting provoke change? Would the death of George Floyd and the systemic police brutality that cost him his life be defining the moment if the police station in Minneapolis had not been torched, if the National Guard hadn't been summoned in states across the country to stem violent unrest, or does rioting degrade and demean 
righteous indignation. The number is 877-301-8970. Let me be clear before we even take a phone call. We are not advocating violence. We are not advocating destruction. We are not advocating rioting. We want reflections on what the reality is. I read a great interview in the last 24 hours with a guy at the University of Pennsylvania, who, of course, yeah. his name I've forgotten, who uh, spent his career studying protests. And I, his line was that nonviolent protest uh, creates awareness that violent protest, and again, he's not advocating it either. He's just reflecting on history, creates urgency. And, and you know, I have to say, the more I read this morning, I think the more his analysis made sense. However, I think that's because, you know, if you take away some of the most historic and meaningful nonviolent protests under people like Reverend King, you know, 50, 60 years ago, Marjorie, uh, generally the numbers and the relentlessness of the nonviolent protesters are not like what we've seen here. And I guess my, I wonder if this professor at the University of Pennsylvania would speak differently if the nonviolent protests of May and June of 2020 were in his uh, uh, vision when there yeah. is large and relentless. But in normal times, uh, I think that nonviolence, again, does create some awareness. It doesn't get the same sort of attention. And I agree with him. It's, I mean, look what happened here. Ironically, I mean, talk about irony. It's the violence that exposed Trump in this situation. It's the violence that caused him, as limited as it was in the grand scheme of things, to do this military thing, which caused the generals and the admirals to turn against them, which caused all this uh, uh, uproar. And so as painful as it is, there there seems to be some value. Again, not advocating, just reflecting. Do you, Where do you come down on this? Well, this, the professor's name is Daniel Q. Gillian. And he him, studied yeah. protests in the yeah. United States in the 50s, which is through the civil rights movements, obviously, up, up till now. I, you know, I, I'm not a scholar on this. I haven't studied this. I read some stories about Neither this this morning. Um, my gut is that um, uh, I don't want to see the looting and I don't want to see well, the violence. And, and I think I think the more violent and loot-filled these protests become, the, the more they hurt the cause. And that what inspires, I think, the, the thousands of people out there protesting, silently holding up their cell phones, chanting, getting down, taking a knee, counting out the minutes it took for George Flo- Floyd to actually expire with that police officer with his, with his knee on his neck. That's what's moving. And I think what also moves people is seeing violent reaction to protest. And that, you know, for People that remember, well, everybody remembers the attacks, you know, when John Lewis was on the, you know, trying to cross the bridge mm-hmm. you know, down in Selma when you saw in the 60s the fire, cops using fire hoses against uh, men, women, and children in, in civil rights protests. And when you saw the President of the United States order tear gas and rubber bullets against peaceful protesters, that to me, the violence from the other side is what really um, makes the peaceful protest powerful and a strong contrast but again i'm not a scholar that's just i'm not a scholar how about civil disobedience as the middle ground uh marjorie i mean the whole the reason there's so much attention here is because we all saw the video of george floyd and the hundreds of thousands if not millions of people who have protested have kept their eye on the prize here it's almost every single day it's every single state that's really unusual how many years have we been complaining on the radio that no matter what is done to the, to the people of this country, I know. we tweet, 
or prior to well, tweeting, right. we, we write a, right. an op-ed in a, in a newspaper. This is really aberrational. and so it, Well, it's aberrational, but it's also the, the protests have become more peaceful and less violent. I mean, according to this, the stories I read this morning, there's been far less. And, and what you're also seeing is that um, the looters are coming from elsewhere. One of our staff members, Arjun, talked about one of his family members having their jewelry store uh, uh-huh. looted in Bellevue, Washington. And it turns out they were they were... Kids from Oregon, from another white kids, by the way, that came in from well, I don't know, I shouldn't say they were kids, but they were white young men from from Oregon. So I think a lot of the looting, and there's been a lot of we talked to Andrew, Andrew Cabral a couple of minutes ago about these false claims about Antifa organizing all this violence. What you are seeing, um, according to the FBI and according to the homeland, the president's own homeland security people, is that there has been uh, uh, right wing agitation to loot and and undermine the protests by looting and going into and setting things on fire. Um, so um, I, I don't like it. I would prefer the peaceful protests. By the way, again, let me be clear me. so that, again, I don't want to get I'm really not in the mood for angry emails, even though you can write them if you want. I'm not advocating. And again, I'm just reflecting on my understanding of what people have said about history. Let me give you one more example before we get to the calls. Yeah. Uh, most of the protests against gun violence in this country not police brutality, not racial oppression. Most of the have been uh, nonviolent. How's that going? Uh, it is not going well. I, I mean, that it is absolutely true. It is not going well. So, again, again, like I'm, I'm not said, advocating. I'm not, uh, uh, that's not an advocacy for violence. Just saying the right. the brilliant, the led by the Parkland kids. I think David Hogg actually is now at Harvard. I don't know if anybody's at Harvard, but what I, I think he's at Harvard as much as he can be. At, do you see the story in the Globe, by the way, that six of the graduate schools at Harvard in the fall have already announced they will not be in person, but rather online in the in the fall. But despite the brilliance of the Parkland kids and the huge support they are able to generate around the country, uh, how many changes happen in Washington? Some state capitals, there were changes, including in Florida, obviously, some. How much change was there in Washington? How much change was there after 20 little six- and seven-year-olds were executed in Newtown a bunch of years ago? The answer is none, right? None, and and that's a great example of, of protests not not getting anywhere. You know, call me Pollyanna-ish. I like to think this is different. This has been days and days and days now. It's been all around the country. It's not just been in one place. And it's been, as I said before, uh, this is not just uh, African Americans or not just people of color. It's it's white people. It's Asian people. It's everybody out there protesting this. So I, I think it may be different. But again. I, can, like I, said, I don't way, have a strong opinion on this, this one. Because Marjorie has, has said about 12 times she's not an expert on this, neither am I. <laughs> Let me say for the 13th time, what provoked this, which you might be interested in, there was a, 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 a bunch of columnists in the New York Times had a debate. Who debated the, it, on, yeah. In the New York Times about this very topic. So if you want to hear from people who have more expertise than... Marjorie yeah, it's a podcast. We don't have. You should check it out. It's called the argument. Yeah. It's called the argument. You can read it as well, but if argument, you want to listen right. to it, it's called the argument. Yeah, it's a debate back and forth between two people. So I'll shut up Let's now, John from Gardner. Thank you for calling. Hi, John. Excuse me. Was that me? Yeah, you're. Yes. John from Hi, Gardner, John. Aren't you? Oh, I'm. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Thanks kidding. for my call, guys. Um, Good to talk to you, John. <laughs> don't mind me. Um, clearly, to me, the nonviolent is the way to go. Any of the violence and so forth. Let's the right and Fox and all that 
decry this thing as a they're throwing them around the word insurrection all over the place now the last couple of nights i've just i can't take it but i just check a couple of times they're already calling this an insurrection and it's unbelievable wait insurrection by the president or insurrection by the the by the people oh the people okay demonstrators i see unbelievable they're not differentiating at all between the peaceful protests and the looters right Right? can i i want to say a hard what i think is a hard truth about what i saw the looting in boston it's a lot of kids having a hell of a time out and and a 20 and 30 year old criminals and it's sad to me to see that behind these wonderful demonstrations these young what in, in boston i'm talking about sunday night was mostly young black kids out having a night and i hope this is such a just cause. And I hope, like you guys, that it's going to be a, a this is going to make a change because this one was so different or so egregious. But I worry that people are going to take their eye off the ball of whatever they're doing in communities. And I know they're doing a lot of stuff that I don't hear about. But to, to keep these, because I worry what those kind of lives are those kids heading for down the road. Hopefully they're like any of us. I did a lot of screwy things growing up and had some good influences and came out all right. And I'm sure a lot of these kids are, but I worry about a lot of them heading down the wrong road behind this just cause and that kind of being lost in the mix, if you know what I mean. Well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I am, I, I am generally not a terribly hopeful person, as I make clear all the time. I, I am sort of where Marjorie is. I am much more hopeful. Th- this has been as, as pretty much as an impressive hand, week and a half in terms of the American people speaking, as I've seen in decades. And I don't see any sense that it's about to abate. So, John, I hope that good things happen, and I actually, for once, think they will. John, thank you for the call. We appreciate it. You know, it's not analogous, but it's kind of useful, I think. Remember back in the Vietnam protesters when first it was everybody, all the so-called hippies were out there at the the anti-war demonstrations, Mm -hmm. all the long hairs, everybody making fun of all the pot-smoking hippies. Well... When it became the parents of the pot-smoking hippies and the parents and the middle-class parents of people whose sons were getting drafted to go to war, it changed. And, and I think it's analogous in the sense that when you see such a diverse group of, of people protesting, that, that changes things. If they have staying power, and they've shown incredible staying power so far. Uh, and again, just as I said to Andrea, and I think I said to Chuck Todd, I'm not sure considering that goal number one was pretty much achieved yesterday when Allison announced charging all the other three cops and elevating the charges against Chauvin. Does that cause people to take their eye off the ball? I don't think so, but I hope, I hope I'm right. Well, it's interesting how many people have said on television and in, and in the stories I've read that this is just the first step. You know, you I, have to I get know. through. It's a long way from here to a trial, a long way to a conviction, a long way to sentencing. And obviously the fear is that uh, there may not be a conviction because that's been the problem in these previous cases. Mm-hmm. Remember in the Freddie Gray case, and he was the young man that got in the car, was arrested for having a pocket knife in Baltimore. Uh, they throw him in the back of the police van. They don't seat belt him in. He winds up yeah. with a broken neck and broken back and he's dead a week later when the uh, young African-American district attorney got up there and announced that they were going to go after these cops big time it made a huge difference but then the anger reemerged when of course nothing happened uh, to those police officers so um, I think people are getting a little jaundiced about 
okay, we might start out doing, you know, going after these costs, but then then they're acquitted uh, over and over and over again. So well, but in the interim, there's, there's uh, as we've discussed for the last hour and a half, a lot of pressure as there should be on elected leaders to uh, uh, embrace reforms that would make a difference beyond just the George yeah. Floyd case. So let's see how much heat is put on these people to, uh, you know, I was really heartened, I have to say, by Chuck Todd, which we haven't talked about at all. He thought that that while there are proposals to both outlaw chokeholds around the country on the federal level or make it criminal, while he didn't think making it criminal was going to pass, he thought a lot of Republican votes, if, remind me if I'm wrong, from an hour and a half ago, could, there could be enough Republican votes there in the Senate, right. allowing, assuming McConnell even allows a vote, uh, if it turns out uh, uh, you lose funding uh, for a federal funding for yeah. the police department, yeah. if you don't uh, uh, outlaw and and abolish these, and he compared it to forcing states to raise the drinking age to twenty one by withholding highway funds. Highway funds, yeah, um, yeah. Tim from Seacock, thank you for calling. Hey Tim. Hi, hi Jeremy Andre. How are you? It's nice talking to you again. You too. Um, thank you. I'll make this. Qu- I, I will make this quick, and thank you for the uh, time. Uh, sure. I was thinking about your 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 uh, idea for a topic about does violence matter. I would say yes, but not in the way you expect. Of course, violence is never acceptable. And Martin Luther King and the incredible discipline and sacrifice he and his followers and people motivated by he and Gandhi, it really does work. However, I do believe, in fact, just this morning, I saw the, the, uh, the uh, great, great John Lewis, coming to John Lewis on TV, and uh, being asked about this, and he, his heart was almost breaking in front of you. But in answer to your question, I believe that as, as, as objectionable as violent, violence is, I would never, ever support it. When violence is carried out uh, against people like Congressman John Lewis and his followers, when they peacefully crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge and Mr. Lewis was beaten almost yeah. to death, I would, say, I would say that violence against the peaceful and the just is remembered, and that is what – even though it's always regrettable, when it does happen to the peaceful and the just and people devoted to the peace, as Congressman Lewis and many others, then that can move the rock over time. Well, yeah, yeah that's th- violence I, from a different absolutely. source, but I think you're right. Hey, uh, Tim, thanks for the call. You know, Marjorie, he, uh, Tim mentioned Martin Luther King, and I meant to say to you, and I forgot about this, the line that is of King's that has been quoted nonstop the last yeah. few days is that riots are the language of the unheard. And yes. I've nodded every time I've heard it, but I didn't stop to think, I'm embarrassed to say, this morning, this was a man who didn't believe in riots, who didn't advocate, obviously, advocated the opposite. So what was he saying exactly? Do, do you know? Well, well my, my understanding of what he was saying is that, is that when you beat your head against the wall, you know, a hundred times and no one pays any attention to you, you get kind of desperate and you do something that you probably shouldn't. Meaning listen no to is... our nonviolent protest act yes. or else that's what you're buying that, that's, for your that, failure to hear right. us. Yeah. That was my interpretation. I think you're probably Tim right. from Plymouth, thank you for calling. Hello, Tim. Tim. We'll give it a third try. Tim from Plymouth, you there? Let's put Tim on hold. Where do we go next? 877-301-8970 is our phone number. Tom in South Boston. Hi, Tom. South Boston. Hey, guys. Hey, listen. So I I think there's a big difference between what I would describe as disruption versus destruction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think think there can be uh, just an effective uh, means of getting a point across 
uh, with a large gathering of people disrupting uh, traffic as an example, right? Being disruptive in, 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 uh, in the, in the normal flow, if you would, of a neighborhood uh, versus uh, destructive. And, and, and it's be, I, I still can't figure out why um, the, the leaders of these, uh, these um, peaceful protests seem to want to have these towards the end of the day. You know, a 5 p.m. start honestly only leads to an 8 p.m. conclusion, which leads to people wandering around the city at night, um, which seems to uh, contribute to, uh, you know, some of the crime that, that follows uh, you know, these kinds of, uh, the protests for the right reasons. Right. So I, I guess my point guys is, you know, just up during the day, um, make it peaceful. <laughs> and I think you, you just as successfully getting your point across. Well, you know, right? Tom, there was Thank not you. disruption. There was peace. Tom. Actually the action yesterday in Boston was yeah, not two thirty in the peaceful. afternoon was totally peaceful from beginning. Uh, what's your t- preferred time, Tom? <laughs> Would you prefer 8 a.m. or what, or 6 a.m. Well, or 11 a.m.? What do you think? Well, and, After and rush hour. World, because, <laughs> well, no, I think I think getting it in rush hour is important. Right? Oh, That's getting in rush of, hour. If you want, if, you want if, you they, know, if these guys want to get want to get their point across, right? They need something to yeah. get people's attention. I kind of agree with uh, the news coverage is pretty lame, right? If uh, if in fact they're not somehow disrupting. You know, Tom, you know what a great example is? Marjorie, was it the Occupy people six or seven or eight or ten years ago in Boston who lay down and actually connected themselves to cement blocks on the expressway? I was kind of annoyed, I must admit. Well, you and I were on the radio. (laughs) No, actually, I remember what you and I were, well, at least I think we were saying, I know I was saying, that uh, uh, it was me, actually. You know, I was just saying just what Tom's saying. That's the way you get attention. Yeah. And I think your response was, Jim, that's easy for you to say. If you were one of the people trying to get to work <laughs> at 7 o'clock in the morning who were or trying to get your hours, kid to daycare or something like that. Yeah. But, the, but, the but you is, know, Tom's got a good point. It, it avoids the because a lot of the worst stuff obviously happens after darkness. So if you're through by the time darkness yeah, gets there. Yeah, but they're there, not through. I mean, I mean, by the way, a lot of this stuff that has happened in places where there's been violence at night didn't start yeah. at six o'clock at night. People have fed on their own enthusiasm and stuck around for hours and hours and hours. And it's not like a, an official endpoint. Do you know? Yeah. What's what are the bike Tom protests thinks. that we all love over there in Cambridge where they block the box or Let something like that? <laughs> that was about ten I mean, years ago. <laughs> I had come to the radio. It's our old radio station. I come to the radio. There was some sort of protest. I don't know. It was by a cyclist. And uh, I was doing all right in Harvard Square. I was the first car that got blocked in is what happened. And I mean, the last car that didn't get through. And I was sort of okay with it because I'm sort of thinking, you know, I support protests. I support this kind of thing. That's right. Until you're in the middle of a particular uh, cyclist started banging his bike up against uh, my car. And I got a little agitated. And I don't know if you remember, Marjorie, the next morning when I came into work to talk about it. I'm mm-hmm. telling the story in the air. We were then hosts of a morning show on a commercial station. Yeah. And in the middle of the thing, uh, uh, our producer said in my ear, uh, that was my roommate who uh, <laughs> was doing, and it was actually his roommate that was. Uh, I should add that Jim couldn't wait 10 minutes in traffic on Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester and he was arrested by a state trooper. Well, so that, he has a, he has a checkered history. The protests are great, Jim, and the blocking of the roads, as long as when you are not the one. Tom, thank you very much the, for the, the middle call. ground here, because none of, I, I know you well enough and I know myself. I'm yep. again, I'm just reflecting what I read in the last 24 hours about the, the effect, uh, uh, the impact on change 
of violence versus nonviolent protest. And I'm not advocating it ever. I don't support violence of any kind. But I think what Tom's point is uh, inconvenience, civil disobedience is sort of the middle ground, which does create a lot of attention, creates a lot of aggravation, but does create a sense of urgency because most people in positions of power don't want their constituents yelling at them if they're inconvenienced yet again. So I guess that's... Annie from Somerville, thank you for the call. Hi, Annie. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I just wanted to point out something that's sort of been said by a few callers and I've seen all over the Internet and whatnot, is advocating for complete nonviolence all the time. I, of course, do not advocate for violence against other human beings or animals like we've seen uh, these poor police horses who had no choice to be dragged into this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> that's right. I Good point. Say, <laughs> these poor police. No, I mean, the point that I'm trying to make is when white people actively advocate for nonviolence all the time, it's really like we're really telling on ourselves, right? We're saying that, yeah, like slaves, enslaved people should have written petitions and called their congressmen and demonstrated completely nonviolently to change their situation. I know this may seem hyperbolic to people if they're not actively dismantling their own racism and working towards an anti-racist, not just a non-racist, an anti-racist outlook. Uh, And I just wanted to know your thoughts about that, this complete advocating for complete nonviolence all the time. It just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of people would say, going way, way back to the to the Civil War, that the things that got the attention were the were the, you know, the the violent protests against slavery. So, I mean, or the comparing, you know, I think to the whole idea of people trying to say, well, looting is one thing, but you know, getting murdered is another thing. So, I mean, those are good points, Annie. Did you see Kobe Evans on my show last night? The uh, man who owns the is the only. Black-owned oh. uh, recreational marijuana store uh, in Dorchester. Oh, the Pure, Pure Oasis, Oasis guy. That was What'd looted the other night. And he went out of his way, I should say, to say that it had nothing to do with the protest. The looters used the protest and the cops' distraction, being a mile or so away, to do it. But, right. you know, in any case, before we break, Marjorie, I should say, while you were doing it, somebody emailed and said we should take a look at our favorite satirist, what Barowitz had to say today. And Barowitz's headline before we break is Trump's bleach moment now seeming like career high point, which I think actually <laughs> after this last week probably is. we got to take a break. Yes, we are taking a break. And coming up uh, in its fight against the coronavirus, the, our state is deploying an army of contact tracers. Dr. Paul Farmer joins us next with an update on how the Tracing Collaborative is doing. Dr. Paul Farmer is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. In order to not just slow down the spread of coronavirus, but to stop it, Governor Baker launched the COVID-19 Community Tracing Collaborative. It was the first effort in the country with the mission of contacting every person who's been exposed this summer with COVID-19. It's been nearly two months since the governor announced the initiative, which is in collaboration with Partners in Health. As the state starts to reopen and as more people bend the rules of physical distancing, it could make contact tracing more complicated. 
Joining us online to talk about how things are going and if something such as thousands of people gathering at the state house is a contact tracer's worst nightmare is Dr. Paul Farmer. Dr. Farmer is a physician and anthropologist, chief strategist and co-founder of Partners in Health, chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Paul Farmer, thanks so much for joining us again. It's a pleasure to be back. And by the way, I should say that while we're going to talk to Dr. Farmer for a little while about this initiative, you can join the conversation with questions or comments about contact tracing or related things in the coronavirus era at 877-301-8970. Um, th- thank you, uh, Dr. Farmer, for, for joining us. As Jim said, uh, we, Charlie Baker has talked a lot about this as his different press conferences, but I think a lot of people don't really understand what this means. So can you explain how contract, uh, contact tracing works? Yeah, I can give it a try. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it works in mysterious ways as well as straightforward ones. Um, contact tracing is a standard um, public health intervention that's been around for over a century, uh, where you're, and it's especially difficult when you're trying to stop a pathogen that has an asymptomatic presentation in in some while people are still infectious. But the idea is the same regardless of how the pathogen is, uh, whether it's a virus or a bacteria, um, whether it's sexually transmitted or airborne. uh, And that is in order to stop an epidemic, you need to make sure that someone who is sick uh, is not infecting more people. I mean, it's as easy as that. And uh, to do that, you have to know who the people who may be exposing others is. And, and that we often get when you get a diagnosis of COVID, what, what happens then? You know, for a physician or a nurse, you, you're, you take care of the patient. Uh, for public health allies who are trying to slow down the epidemic, you find every person with whom he or she may have had contact, and then try to assess their risk, whether or not they're well, and then isolate them um, from their community. And to isolate someone, as we all know from the past couple of months, you need a lot of support. So that's the idea behind it. And again, it's not new. It's been used very effectively in responding to the current outbreak in, uh, in Taiwan and South Korea uh, and in many other places. And uh, Governor Baker wanted to bring every tool from the toolkit to bear on the Massachusetts epidemic. And so that's that's the backstory, which I think we got a chance to talk about very briefly a couple of months ago. So what is a close contact? What's the definition of somebody who a contact tracer would reach out to uh, if they found out that a uh, person who tested positive had been in, quote, close contact with others? Well, that's where the mystery part comes in, Jim, because, you know, we're not sure. Every time you say something is a novel pathogen, what we really mean is it's newly identified and recognized as a cause of, if we're talking about a a zoonosis, a cause of disease in animals that can cause disease in humans. Um, And uh, the mystery part is how long does the contact need to be? You know, how close is that person to you just in terms of geography? Because with an airborne infection, um, you know, people are spraying viable virus into the air when they speak or sing or chant in a protest, for that matter. Um, and how long, how long is a significant exposure? With a novel pathogen, uh, you're doing studies at the same time that you're looking at other related pathogens. So all this to say, Jim, you know, uh, 
you know, is a 15-minute uh, exposure uh, sitting next to someone in a cloud, crowded, uh, closed room having a, a private conversation or sharing a meal or sharing a bite, rather? Is that a, a, an adequate contact? Well, we don't know, you know, but the, the best thing to do is to have the, uh, uh, you know, to, to have a very conservative idea of how readily the pathogen can be transmitted so that you can find, you know, it's great to have more people than you need on your contact list uh, because that means you're doing a, a good job. And another way, excuse me for, for going on, another oh, way. Please do. No, it's okay. To, you're doing a good job at contact tracing is when every new case of a disease shows up on the contact list. In other words, so if you're in West Africa and fighting Ebola and doing contact tracing in one part of the country and then in a neighboring district, say, someone falls ill, is that person already on the contact list? And, uh, you know, what I saw in West Africa was that early in the epidemic, most people we saw were not on a contact list. They were not already in this safety net of looking for people who may be sick and may need care. And certainly, uh, if they are infectious, need to be isolated with support again. So we're, we were a long way from that in Massachusetts or any other American state, uh, you know, where you could say, oh, you know, Mrs. Smith has, has fallen ill and someone else says, yeah, she's a contact of so-and-so. So uh, that's the messy work and the mystery of, of contact tracing. But it's just one part of a toolkit um, that is required. The others, including, of course, prompt diagnosis and, and adequate care. So it, let me just stand this for, for a second. And by the way, we'll get to the not only your calls at 877-301-8970 in a few minutes. And we'll also get to what I said in the introduction to you is the ultimate nightmare for contact tracers protest with thousands and thousands of people. I, you know, when I first heard about this uh, and your effort here, and I know there have been many before, were it not partners in health, I would say it's impossible. But I think you've proven that nothing's impossible when you guys get involved. But I just did numbers, doctor, this morning. So we've had 100,000 positive tests in Massachusetts. And obviously that's not all the people who are positive. It's just 100,000 positive tests. But let's assume for argument's sake it's only them. And let's assume that of them, some people are those who have been – were in, well, let's assume that Charlie Baker is right. Let me put it another way. That rather than the assumption going in that there would be an average of 10 close contacts, I think he said repeatedly – with every positive tested person that's closer to two, which is really good news, that means that you and your colleagues have to reach out to at least somewhere in the neighborhood of, what, 150,000, 200,000 people? Am I, am I right about that? And You are, you are right, and, and, uh, and we have we've just, I think we're heading towards 300,000 outreaches at this point. And to do that requires a, you know, personnel in obviously in excess of people who are already working with public health departments, and there are over 350 of them in, in Massachusetts alone. So they're already doing that work around certain diseases. Um, let's say a contact tracing effort around tuberculosis, of which mm -hmm. there's very little in Massachusetts, or syphilis. You know, they're, they know this work. We're just trying to echo and amplify their efforts. And I would just add that uh, the, so far, since the project was launched, uh, my colleagues in, the, in, in public health and at Partners in Health have, have uh, recruited close to 2,000 contact tracers. Uh, 
Um, and of that 100,000 or so cases, uh, in this sort of new regime of trying to do everything we can to every tool in the toolkit, we've uh, this collective has evaluated the contacts of 26,000 of them. Oh. So, you know, it sounds... It sounds impressive, 275,000 calls, 26,000, you know, uh, actual confirmed cases, um, and uh, 2,000 recently recruited recruits. It sounds like a lot, but you can see that's only a quarter of the, the cases that had already been registered. And uh, using this new approach, this new, more aggressive and more supportive approach, frankly, I think we're going to see, I think we are seeing a return on that investment already. So, but when you yep. talk about those two hundred seventy-five thousand, uh, let's assume I'm one of them, and is difficult and Herculean as the task appears to me f- from afar. Uh, if everybody was happy to get the call, what happens? I think is your colleague's name Dr. Welch, who was at a Baker yes. press conference. Is that his name? Yes, John Welch. Yeah, I think he was asked the question about. You know, what happens when the person either doesn't answer the call, doesn't want to talk to you because they don't trust the contact tracer? How do you deal with those kinds of dilemmas? Do you mind me, you know, stepping back to Haiti and West Africa? Of course not. No. It's just that my, you know, although my first job, I may have told you this when I was on your show, my my first job as a medical student here uh, in Massachusetts was as a contact tracer decades ago. And so, I mean, I was very uh, nervous for, I mean, what if they don't want us? And this was mm-hmm. pre-COVID. So these are actually knocks on the door and talking with people in their homes. Um, and, uh, you know, old-fashioned shoe leather public health intervention. And I, I had the job that I got, the reason I got that job at 24, a uh, part-time job, is because I spoke Haitian and... Uh, you know, my experience in investigating outbreaks as a, you know, as a contact tracer was that people uh, were happy to have you in their homes and lives as long as it was very clear that you were there to help them not to enforce a draconian measure, not to uh, imperil their situation. They didn't have legal standing in the country. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, you know, there are all these justifiable fears. And indeed, that's sort of the other side of the coin in the United States is we're in the middle of a crisis with uh, uh, with COVID, but also with structural racism. You know, these mistrust, fear of public health outreach is often related, as you said, to mistrust in public authorities. But it's also possible to uh, make those uh, to exaggerate those concerns. Some people are very happy to have a call and say, in, in which they hear, you know, we have reason to believe you may have had some exposure. How are you feeling? Uh, how can we help you? Did, you know, uh, it was on this, on this day for this time. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to let people know the primary pers- purpose of contact tracing is to slow down an epidemic and help them and their families. And, and so the, the ratio of, of, of calls that aren't picked up uh, to calls that uh, are accepted and lead to something uh, protective. We hope that that uh, fraction will go up as people do see that the purpose of this is solely to slow down the epidemic and make sure people are protected from infection or if they're already sick that they do not transmit it to others and receive the care that they need. 
So in Haiti, Rwanda, uh, and Sierra Leone in West Africa, all those uh, settings, with the possible exception of Rwanda, you know, they, they've had, uh, they have more internal dissensus and a recent history of conflict uh, than we do in the United States. And yet the efforts work there as well. We're talking to Dr. Paul Farmer about contact tracing in Massachusetts. The number to reach us is 877-301-8970. You can email at bpr at org. Just one more quick thing from me, Dr. Farmer. Um, a couple of people have asked this. When you, when right at the beginning, uh, if you uh, get coronavirus, you go get a test and you have coronavirus, how does it start? Do you contact the Massachusetts Department of Health or... Does, the, does that record of your, of your positive test go to them and then they contact you? And if you think you have coronavirus but you never get a test, are you supposed to call them? I mean, how does it work right at the start? Well, uh, we're just an ancillary of the public health authorities. So, you know, as I said, uh, to echo and amplify the work that, that they're already doing, the testing that is done in a public lab um, in a you know, a public health lab then then goes into it. Then you have the name of a uh, of a person and the, a patient, and, and the patient is interviewed for contacts, and then those people are contacted. This is an all voluntary endeavor. Um, there are uh, laws, and even in Massachusetts, but I'm sure in many states, that would, could be invoked. Uh, you know, to make this uh, some kind of compulsory or mandatory tracking program or mandatory reporting, as it's called. But that that is often not necessary because, as I said, people are often happy to hear there's someone who wants to make sure they're okay. Um, so, again, the, the, the collaborative was to was designed to add person power to help find to help start this, as you said, enormous task, but also messy task of, of trying to establish who has contact with whom, which again, there are technological ways, there are new technologies, but there are also just the good old fashioned, you know, phone call saying, how are you? So Dr. Farmer, last thing for me before we get to the calls at 877-301-8970, the, the thing that I started this discussion with. So uh, I was, uh, I'm John Doe, Jane Doe. I was in Franklin Park, whatever it was, three days ago. Uh, I feel symptoms. I test positive for uh, uh, COVID-19. And I'm asked by one of your people, who have you been in close contact with uh, in the last couple of days? And I say about 8,000 people whose names I don't know uh, and whose contact <laughs> information I don't have. I'm serious. How, yeah. what, do you, what in the hell do you possibly do with somebody who is at one of these huge demonstrations who yeah. tests positive? Well, uh, Jim, I, you're, you're pushing my level of experience. <laughs> um, I have been involved in responding to epidemic disease for 30 years. Um, and, you know, I, and these include drug-resistant tuberculosis mm -hmm. and airborne disease, Zika, um, Ebola, you know, HIV. And, uh, but have I ever been in a situation where there's a nationwide lockdown where 40 million people lose their jobs, where there's a uh, major protest in 140 plus cities? The answer is no. So clearly we are in uncharted waters now. 
but the question is not can this old and hoary uh, technique of contact tracing help us? We think it can or we wouldn't be doing it. But how does this play into this larger effort to get a handle on the epidemic? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we're, we're going to find some of these. We're going to discover some of these things in the doing. Um, my guess is that there is nonetheless someone somewhere who has substantial experience dealing with epidemics in exactly such crowds. I mean, a pilgrimage to Mecca, um, yeah. uh, for example, or another uh, phenomenon of, of massive migration or pilgrimage. You know, there are there are folks who spend their whole lives uh, just working on these problems. I, I haven't been one of them being more a clinician, but um, it's very impressive what can be done in even in the middle of um, very difficult circumstances or in the middle of a mass movement like a pilgrimage. So uh, for the folks back in Brighton, should we take a break before we take questions for Dr. Farmer or should we just go right to the coals? Uh, great. Let's go right to the coals. Amy, you're, you're in JP, Jamaica Plain. You're on with Dr. Paul Farmer from uh, Partners in Health. Welcome. Thank you. Um, first, I just want to say it. thank you so much um, to Partners in Health and uh, to you know to to the state for for doing this. I feel a lot safer living here <laughs> than I would I think in any other state. I just really want to thank you, and I feel really proud to actually live here where this is happening. Um, I also wanted to ask. I when I first heard about it, I actually heard it the day the governor announced it, and I immediately applied because I wanted to be part of the effort. And I never, you know, I wasn't hired. And, and so then I applied again <laughs> and still not hired. And I just, so I was curious, like, how do you um, decide who to hire to be a contact tracer? Well, um, um, I hope that the people who make those decisions are listening, because one thing <laughs> I know on the Partners in Health side is they love persistence. Can I ask <laughs> What's your name? I've never Not applied applicant. for a job twice in my life. That's the kind of thing that really makes a difference to my my friends and colleagues at Partners in Health. Um, but seriously, you you uh, don't 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 stop applying. I fear that um, you know when you look at how much we've underfunded our public health laboratories and public health departments, they're splintered as well as you've heard. If there are that many in one state, but <clears throat> they're also uh, beleaguered, overworked overwhelmed they don't have enough enough staff so don't give up on applying if we had five times as many contact tracers you know would that be too many i don't know there are lots of things that people can do as community health workers too so um i i hope you won't give up but that wasn't your question was it <laughs> well yeah i just want I, I just wanted to know how you decide because i mean oh, i, I think was, i'd be really then here good again at it. i'm going to say i don't know but people <laughs> do make those decisions are um, are listening in. You know, in looking back historically at previous contact tracing endeavors, and believe it or not, there are people who not only, you know, uh, make this their life life's work, but also people who, who study it and look back at it, the historical example. Sometimes you'll see that cohorts, um, you know, a lot of them have university educations. Maybe they're interested in social uh in, in social science, maybe they're just friendly, maybe they're uh, moved by some personal experience. I, I would imagine that my colleagues who are making those choices are trying to bring all of those factors into bear. I've only sent uh, a couple of people their way, uh, but they've had 
uh, I mean, there were thousands of applications online within a day or so of announcing it. Um, mm. But others, you know, in some settings where we work, uh, any kind of uh, requirement like that would make most people unable to apply to be a community health worker or contact tracer, right? Because in rural Haiti, you, you wouldn't get people in the 80s. In any case, you wouldn't get enough people with the literacy requirements and training requirements. So we haven't really used those in Haiti, Rwanda, Malawi, Lesotho, and, and this is sometimes controversial. Like, should we have uh, professional requirements? What we've done is recruit people who have a, a deep and abiding interest in this, and maybe they're community, engaged in community work already or involved in their communities, um, and, uh, and then worked on training them, uh, community health workers is the general rubric here, worked on training them, and uh, often they've used this station as a springboard to some other work inside uh, the broad health arena. We've seen that again and again in Haiti and Rwanda uh, and places where we've, uh, where we've worked a long time. So someone becomes a community health worker, and maybe he, what he really wants to be is a nurse and then goes to nursing school after some years. Anyway, the criteria are, are, are I hope they'll remain flexible because something like persistence uh, would be very useful in a contact tracer. Amy, my advice to you is when you do your third application, you say you were told to apply for the third time by Paul Farmer. That may help. That's I don't right. Know. Amy, thanks <laughs> very much for your call. Besides... I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> One thing, Amy, what's, Amy, what's your last name? Because I think Dr. Wells Sand. is probably listening. Oh, there you go. S-A-N-D-S, Amy Sands. Well, there we go. Okay, there you go. Going right Amy, to the good top, luck. Amy. Thanks for the call. <laughs> Let us know how it goes. Thank you so much. Yes, please. You know, Dr. Farmer, you just mentioned the um, the, the overwhelmed um, community health workers, and I know in an interview you gave, I think it was to Harvard Magazine, you talked about this too, and that this is something, a recurring theme, that our public health offices and workers were overwhelmed, that we have yeah. nowhere near what we should have. Do you think that there's any move to change that after this disaster? I, I sure hope so. You know, yeah. if, if uh, some of the numbers, just to give you, Jim started with numbers, so I, I'll, I'll just give some others. So in, um, in, the, in some countries in the world, there are strong community health worker programs. I mean, I mentioned Rwanda very frequently, uh, having spent so many years there and seen how powerful a, a health system that includes community-based care and community health workers uh, can be. So um, that's a country of about 12 million people, um, and I don't know what the current number is, but my guess is they have 70,000 community health workers. Um, and even in a, you know, if you take a place like Navajo Nation, which is spread out over three states, um, you don't have to go to Navajo and make an argument that we need community health workers. They have long had community health workers called community health representatives. And again, they are doing the same work um, in very difficult circumstances, but there are only 120 so of, of them, right? And most of them are getting on in age. They're almost all w women. And uh, so there may be fewer population of maybe a quarter of a million people in Navajo compared to 12 million in Rwanda, but they're spread out of a bigger area 
so these women are driving around in their pickup trucks in the snow or whatever, or uh, and uh, and just with an enormous amount of work. And if you think of that image in the rest of the United States, where there isn't a tradition of community health workers, and where the public health system is so underfunded, you can imagine the strain that they would feel, even in flu season. Forget about flu plus COVID. Um, and so I think that's another big part of it, to recognize the value of public health and of our public health uh, machinery, um, state, local, national, and how important it is to keep that well-funded and, and to make really significant investments now. So you asked if I thought that was going to happen. This is the first time uh, in a long time that uh, I've ever heard people even use the term contact tracing or yeah. community-based, uh, you know, health investigation. So I, I, I'm trying to seize optimism from any possible source. Um, you know, it's the same thing looking at structural racism in the country. You know, there are more people talking about it now than any other time in my life. And so you just want to cling to something that, that, you know, may lead to improvement. And I think we have to make sure that this tragedy or these tragedies do lead to an improvement and a better social safety net in this country. We're talking to Dr. Paul Farmer, chief strategist, co-founder of Partners in Health, which is the uh, lead organization in the contact tracing effort here in Massachusetts. Michael, you're calling in from Colorado. Welcome to the show. You're on with Dr. Farmer. Hi, Michael. Hi, guys. Uh, Thanks for having me. I have a quick question for Dr. Farmer. Um, Out here in Colorado, a lot of the public mandates have us uh, wearing any kind of face covering, as they're calling a face mask. And I guess I was curious about, is there a potential danger to spreading COVID-19 and any additional difficulties of contract tracing uh, from the wearing of improper face masks? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we're, we're starting to see, I mean, I feel, I feel like I was cavalier a few months ago, not about using a face mask in a setting of like a, you know, someone with active, TV, but rather, um, you know, poo-pooing a little bit the need for everybody to wear a face mask. Well, that that looks like it was an erroneous kind of uh, prejudice. It didn't matter because I wasn't making those decisions. And now we know that an N95 mask, and this is what you're referring to, I'm guessing, an N95 mask is, as we've long said, a, a better and more protective mask for healthcare workers. For the contact tracing initiative, most of it is, is by phone and remotely, right? So the amount of, uh, uh, we always ask this question, you know, might this help? Could this make things better? And so not causing harm is a big deal. And if you were to, you know, uh, increase risk to contact tracers or from contact tracers, uh, that would mean we were, we were doing something wrong. So I think right now we're in this do no harm phase. Can it help? Uh, there, I have little doubt that it can help, but I don't think it should increase risk for either contact tracers um, or uh, those being interviewed by contact tracers. And, and, and normally, of course, that would be, you'd say, is there a person that links this patient to this un, uh, unknown but now found to be infected patient? And the answer is yes, that person is a community health worker or a contact tracer. That's an exposure. You know, that, you're right. That's an exposure. But there's very little of that going on right now since most of it is done remotely. Michael, right. thank you for your um, thank call. You. Yeah, I thank guess you for the call, Michael. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. Michael, finish. I'm yeah, sorry. No, I, yeah, just a, 
I'll follow up if that's okay. Just, sure. Um, sure. You know, we go down to the you know local grocery store, and it's difficult that um, a lot of the people are not social distancing anymore because they're wearing some homemade cloth mask that's not you know rated for the particulate size. So, I guess how would you know in these situations with these public mandates if you have actually been exposed? You know, the risk of going out seems like it's higher um, with this false sense of security and. And I appreciate all your contributions, and I'll be done after that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank, thank you, Michael. I mean, I, I think when that's one of the reasons that um, no one has – I mean, here in any case, uh, social distancing recommendations have not been relaxed. Um, and, uh, again, it, a mask is, like social distancing is only one component of the response, and each of them is fallible, uh, even the best masks. Um, you know, is has shortcomings, no doubt. And even the best efforts at social distancing have shortcomings. You've heard people say, is it six feet? Is it four? Is it nine? Again, this is to be expected in addressing a new new or newish problem, a novel coronavirus. Um, and, but there aren't going to be hard and fast answers. And I think that, Michael, your your caution is, is still warranted. We You don't know that uh, a mask is going to be enough. A mask plus social distancing all of the experience we have, all of the experimental designs that can be thought up, and all of the modeling that has been done suggests that each of those adds a protective layer. You know, so would being outside, so would having ultraviolet light, so would having high airflow. There are lots of things in the equation, um, and, uh, you know, understanding what they are uh, is an important part of this. Michael, We're thanks. We're talking to Dr. We're talking to Dr. Paul Farmer, the co-founder and chief strategist of Partners in Health. We're going to keep talking to him after this break. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. She's Mark Regan. I'm Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about the coronavirus outbreak with a man who has confronted many outbreaks, Dr. Paul Farmer. He's the co-founder and chief strategist of Partners in Health, which is working with the Baker administration on the COVID-19 Community Tracing Collaborative. You can talk to Dr. Farmer directly as soon as the line opens up at 877-301-8970. Dr. Dan from Natick just emailed and asked, why didn't we do large-scale contact tracing at the very beginning of the pandemic when we could have snuffed out the virus before it got out of control? Wow. Uh, am I allowed to say why indeed and count that as an answer? You know, a lot of us are asking that. But again, I, that's why I mentioned, I'm not sure I gave everybody the right advice in February. Um, you know, uh, it, it, we we do, however, have authorities who are charged with making those decisions and the timing of them. So, I, you know, I, I think about that uh, with a lot of pain, um, you know, some sympathy for 
people who failed to initiate this earlier, um, but also mostly sympathy for the the uninfected population and those who are being missed who are sick. Uh, that's where we have to keep our primary sympathy. So I don't know why it wasn't started earlier. Um, and I think we'll learn a lot by looking at what ha happened elsewhere. Like it's so difficult to suss out what intervention made what impact. But when you have such astoundingly low uh, infection rates and case fatality rates in a place like Taiwan um, or, or South Korea, which brought under control uh, what could have been an, uh, an out of control epidemic, when you have those experiences, then you have to start asking, well, why is that? Why have they managed to go through this, if not unscathed, almost unscathed, and we have floundered so much. And I, I think those answers are going to take some time coming. But uh, all I can say about why didn't we stop earlier is why indeed, but not, you know, not pointing a figure at something else, someone else. I mean, if Jim Kim, who is another founder of Partners in Health, hadn't, you know, pushed this, and he, he, he also pushed it with Governor Baker, you know, maybe we would have been uh, a couple weeks later out of the block as well. So I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm sure the answer lies in, you know, human frailty and how bureau bureaucracies work. But uh, we can't let up now. Dr. Farmer, before we go back to the coals, how much harder is the job of protecting public health made by, in this country, there was a story in the Times yesterday, I think it was the Times, the ever-shrinking CDC, and internationally by our uh, cutting off under Donald Trump of our connection with and support for the uh, WHO? Well, I think, it's, I think it complicates our task very substantially. Um, you know, just to go to the WHO uh, issue, I'm, I'm still not convinced that there has been that poor a performance. You know, if this virus was identified at the end of last year or in the beginning of this year, and by January 12th, the genetic sequence of the organism was known and shared, um, and this came from China, then you have to say, well, that's pretty fast. You know, that, that's pretty quick. Um, I mean, and, and going back to other epidemics, who knows how long HIV smoldered in, in uh, pockets of the world uh, before it was ever identified mm -hmm. in the 80s. You know, I do know that when, uh, when the West African epidemic started, it took many months from the first, what appear to be the early cases called index cases, took many months before the pathogen was even identified as Ebola. So... You know, if you've been through these other epidemics, and there are plenty of people who've done done this exclusively for decades, I'm not so sure in the end that they'll find that this was um, that we were that late in identifying a new pathogen and sharing information about it that could lead to the development of vaccine. But uh, you know, the the backing out of the WHO in the middle of a health crisis, a global health crisis of the sort we have not seen in a century seems to me ill-advised. Uh, similarly, the CDC, you know, made some errors in testing. Okay, but we can't function without the CDC, and it is considered outside of this country as one of the premier health agencies of the world. So that, that conflict and, and has been difficult as well. Of course, I could, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to sound polemic, but I would also add that you know, structural racism, inequality, uh, and, um, you know, that also complicates 
every public health task. You know, you, you brought up earlier the question of trust. You know, the way to damage trust um, between a polity or a state and, and the people who live in it. Uh, some of the things we've seen in the last eight or nine days, I think, are are examples of how you erode trust. Talking to Dr. Paul go, Farmer. Where do you want to go, Marjorie? Let's go to Keegan in Boston. Thank Hi, you for Keegan. calling. Hey, Peter. I just had a quick question about what role employers play in contact tracing and generally trying to keep the curve flattened. Well, you know, we've been um, – we. Well, one of the things, you know, the first thing I thought about when you said employers was health insurance because we have this peculiar uh, system. In the contact tracing endeavor itself – I, I don't want to venture an answer. An answer I'll ask um, Dr. Welch and Dr. Rowe and others. Um, but we've had a lot of help from the private sector. You know, uh, a couple companies uh, offering up their um, technological wizardry um, to to make this. Uh, I was going to say seamless, but less seamful maybe is the right <laughs> term. Um, but as far as employers themselves, we, we and again, I, I'm, I'm not the most informed on, on that detail, but this has been between the someone who's uh, already documented to have corona, coronavirus and the contact tracers and public health system. So there's not an intermediary um, of, of uh, the employers at, at this point. And I'm, I'm not, you know, just as an employee of Harvard and the Brigham, um, you know, uh, Contact tracing doesn't proceed all that differently within a private institution either. I, I'm, um, those are the employers I, I know. And that is, again, um, uh, the, the health authorities who are charged with infection control are in contact with patients and contacts. And that's pretty much it. Keegan, thanks for the call. Doctor, before we get back to the calls, I know Governor Baker has said this a million times. When we've aired it on our show, and I'm embarrassed that I've forgotten to assure people that it's not a faux uh, call, it, what uh, I think the ID that he mentions that shows up on your phone if one of your people is calling is mass COVID, MA COVID-19, is that right? Right, right. And, you know, what he's always said is, if you get a call like that, answer it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't answer I don't answer calls I don't recognize, you know. Uh, a lot of people don't. And uh, I think we're – I don't know what the batting average is, uh, Jim, but – you know, it's it's not it's not miserable. So there are plenty of people who are answering, and sometimes the what unfolds is you know not a ten minute back and forth, but an hour long chat uh, about all sorts of topics that it turns out people still want to talk mm -hmm. about. Let's go to Rob on Cape Cod. You're with uh, Dr. Paul Farmer on Boston Public Radio. Hi, Rob. Hi. Thanks a lot for taking the call. Sure. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Farmer, I have a, a technical question. It, it can, is it reasonable to take the number of people who have died and divide it through by the assumed fatality rate and percentage to get the total number of infected? And if so, what would that fatality rate be? Um, I, well, I don't know the, the answer to that. I know that right now when we calculate fatality rates, it is based on those two numbers, cases and case, cases of infection. Um, and so sometimes with an aggressive screening pro program, that would be a lot of young people who don't have any symptoms. I mean, you know, you probably heard in the press today that George Floyd had evidence of recent yeah. corona infection yes. in April. So, um, you know, as someone who's otherwise healthy in their 40s or younger, 
um, if you when you start doing a lot more testing, uh, that means the you know the 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 number of people with infection compared to the number of deaths, the, it changes the case fatality ratio. And, and indeed, it seemed like the president of the United States recognized that early on. You know, he said, don't want to mess up our numbers, so we shouldn't do more testing. But, um, you know, when we started hearing, excuse me, in, um, we started hearing about the case fatality rate in Wuhan back in January and February, uh, there was immediate cause to say, wait, maybe this isn't like uh, seasonal influenza. You know, maybe this does have a more, remember MERS and SARS, uh, two other coronavirus diseases, also had very high case fatality rates, um, but did not spread across the world in the same way. So I would just argue that while we do not know the actual case fatality rate and will not know it until we have widespread seroprevalence testing, right? Um, what we can say is something has gone terribly wrong in Italy, in Spain, in the United States, in England, you know, and, and, uh, and it's going to go wrong in other places. And when you see case fatality uh, creep up over two or three percent, um, then you're really out of the arena of influenza, of seasonal influenza. And, uh, and, and, and I'm uh, and I'm fearing that, you know, we, we're going to see still pretty impressive case fatality rates, certainly among older age groups, uh, and as we've seen, higher case fatality rates among people of color. So I, I don't expect those uh, trends to, to disappear, and, uh, but I do expect them to look significantly better as widespread testing uh, uh, finally is taken up. Rob, thanks for the call. We appreciate it. You know, Dr. Farmer, this is not a question about contact tracing. It's about plain old getting tested, so I'm going to ask anyway because I think Anne represents lots of people. She's from Middleborough when she says, when can I get tested, please? When can regular people who have no symptoms get tested so we can possibly spend time with our family without fear of spreading the virus? I don't know if you can ever be without fear, but in any case, do you, do you have any well, idea about that? I, 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 yesterday <laughs> I was talking to another one of the architects of this endeavor, uh, Dr. K.J. Sung, um, and uh, we were, you know, we were at, at, at the Brigham for another reason, and um, he was saying, you know, we, we still are having poor uptake of uh, drive-through testing. I didn't get a chance to ask for the specifics of where and what, but we have this mismatch right now um, that is apparent in the question. There are still people who want to have an, a convenient, no-fuss way of testing who are not having ready access. And then we have at the same time someone who's at the heart of this saying we're not having enough uh, people take us up on that offer. So again, as long as this system, this broader system of, uh, you know, testing, tracing, support, um, and I, and support meaning isolation in sport, when we have that all lined up, you know, we're going to have to keep uh, I say we as if I were to make the decisions, but we, the big we, are going to have to keep changing the programs to, so that they meet people's needs. You know, just to add well, uh, a couple of different examples, in a, in a hospital, uh, big, a big hospital like the Brigham, the, the testing regime is, is different from, you know, in a school where most of the students are, are gone or a university where most of the students are, are home. Um, and it's going to be look very different if universities, when universities try 
to reopen residential campuses. So I think we'll be seeing lots of uh, new and I hope much more convenient um, testing uh, possibilities roll out. Also, there are going to be at-home tests, of course, too, that are uh, likely to be made available com commercially, um, like a pregnancy test. Um, and uh, so I, I think we are going to, the answer to the question, I do not know, but I'm hoping we're talking about within weeks. By the way, we should just add, uh, Governor Baker has said this on a number of occasions, again, which has aired on our show, is that while they're doing, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 tests a day, I hope this is in part ans an answer to the caller's question, with, I think he says, a 30,000 test per day capacity, his goal is by uh, July to be doing 45,000 tests a day, and by December, 75,000 tests a day. So that, obviously that's a whole different universe in but, terms of numbers. But the second part of Ann's question was then could she spend time with her family without worrying? But correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Farmer, you could get tested on Monday and be negative and get tested again on Wednesday and be positive. It's like Pence's so press secretary. Right. So there yeah. isn't that there's assurance. No question. No question. Yeah. So what we're talking about for people who are uninfected, who do not have demonstrable antibodies to COVID-19, to the new coronavirus, what we're talking about is many, many tests in the future. I, I think right. we're looking at a future with a lot of testing. And, and again, yes. I mean, I, just sitting in on, uh, on calls about reopening labs or uh, residential um, residential. Uh, universities, uh, you realize that some of the testing regimes that are being suggested are extremely aggressive, where you're talking about test every three days, every week, every two weeks. You know, these are being modeled. They're not being done. They're, you know, what impact would this have if you had one, you know, positive patient unknown because they're 20-year-old 20, 20 students, say, and not they don't have symptoms, who is around, you know, 100 or 99 uninfected at what rate will they, you know, all become uh, infected or most become infected? Um, and, uh, and in order to prevent that, it's going to require frequent testing in order to take care of people who, uh, and, and again, with supportive isolation and medical care, is also going to require a lot of testing. So the governor's projections to me do not seem extravagant. Let's try Let's to get another to call or two in. Glenn in the car. Thank you for calling. Hi, Glenn. Hi, I think um, perfect timing on this because I was infected by a college-age uh, student who had no symptoms, never had a symptom, and infected my whole family. Um, wow. Monday after, Monday after Mother's Day, I got a positive test. My wife went at the same time, got a negative test. And then I went through heck. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then oh. this young girl infected my whole family, including my 85-year-old mother, the oh. whole family um, tested positive, but everybody had different degrees I'm trying to get through this quick, different degrees and everybody's fine and everybody's safe. But what scares me is that she had never had any symptoms working out every day, felt wonderful, but infected everybody then had a test and it was positive And then we traced it back. But then I 
then the public health nurse calls me, and all this is going on tracking, and said, hey, um, because I posted online because of a whole different reason that I wouldn't be able to start this food program that I was kept on doing and doing homeless people, but whatever, because I was sick, that she found out that I was positive, but she kept on calling me going, we don't have anything from the state that you're positive. We don't have anything. And, you know, the urgent care called me and told me I was positive. And then my wife was negative. And then, uh, then she went through the whole symptoms and went through heck. And then we call back and then they're saying, oh, we're not even, we don't want to test you because we don't have enough tests. You, you, you have to, just because you're in the household, you have to figure that you have, you're positive. So my whole thing is that we're underestimating, I think, this with, through this tracking. There are a lot more people yeah. because it, no, I live I, in a very, very small yeah. town on the North Shore. And Glenn, public health nurses, okay, I we think we got eight it. People. We got it. Let's hear what let, the doctor has yeah, to say. Yeah, let Dr. Farmer, has, well, uh, you know, thank you Glenn, for the call, though. I, First of all, Glenn, I'm glad everybody's okay, um, especially an 85-year-old. Um, and I hope the, you know, that's the nature of this disease. There's no way that an asymptomatic person could know that they're infected except through testing. That's the, the only way. And testing has not been readily available, as, as, as you've discovered. I mean, you shouldn't really have to go to urgent care for a test so much as urgent care for care. But, you know, again, looking at this with a, with a, uh, the experience I've had is that, you know, at least the Ebola virus was courteous enough to mostly cause symptomatic disease. In other words, the claims that we heard from the CDC were, you know, if someone doesn't have a fever and they don't have symptoms, they're probably not infectious with Ebola. That mostly held true. Of course, later research showed that, in fact, there are a substantial number of asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic patients with Ebola, too. So, you know, part of this work uh, for me is, like, how can we keep mustering the kind of humanity and compassion for everybody in this messed-up situation? Um, yeah. Sort of, and, and, and so it's really tough. I mean, that public health nurse who called you, Grant, you know, I can only imagine what her days have been like in the last three months. Mm. You know, it's just it's really a, a, a tough situation. And the only way um, to to get out of it is is, you know, a merciful, compassionate and just way that is also technically correct. And working that out has been as every American now knows the technical aspects of this. Working this out has been quite uh, jagged, difficult, you know, and uh, and there have been a lot of surprises. Hey, Paul Farmer, you know, what do you do to keep your spirits up? I mean, you've dealt <laughs> with, I'm sure everybody listening knows, some of the most serious, intractable, seemingly intractable public health crises around the world. I'm serious. What do you do to be hopeful, to keep pressing ahead? What's your, it's in the genes or what is it? <laughs> I'm well, serious. It's a good thing. It's a, well, I'll take it seriously. It's a good thing I don't have Netflix. Let's put it that way. Because <laughs> uh, let me tell you, America has great TV. That's for sure. Um, you know the, the the best answer, and everybody has their own their own ways. You know, I I, I can just say it. I mean, I I I really like going to mass, <laughs> and uh, uh, just you know. If you look at the stuff that comes up, and I'm sure it's the same in Islam and Judaism, you know, the stuff that comes up in these readings is some deep stuff. But, you know, yeah. like, 
the the church the church is closed and the priest has COVID, and you know he lost his mother to COVID. You know this is right here in Boston. And you talk uh, about John Udi. Yeah. yeah, you know John and, Udi uh, at Saint. Yeah, because he has COVID. Yeah. Yeah, and you know um, he, I wouldn't have shared it, but he shared it with his parish. But you know um, I mentioned I mentioned church just as a stand-in for community activities in general. Um, and then, but I can say the, what gets me, keeps my spirits up because they don't stay up, Jim, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, the earthquake in Haiti, that was, I would never have made that through without my Haitian, made it through that without my Haitian friends, you know, just so friends and your, your community of concern and your, you know, and, and community activities, I think are, uh, can bolster you in, in tough times. And that makes social distancing all the more difficult. Yeah, I bet it does. Uh, we have time, I think, for one more quick one, Marjorie, do you think? Yes? Uh, Kimberly in Barnstable, thank you for calling. you got a minute, Kimberly. Thank you for calling. Um, Marjorie, and um, I, I love your show, both of you. Thanks, Thanks. for having thank me. You. I'm actually Thanks. from thank Dunstable. You. I'm not sure if I'm repeating what you've already said, but years ago I read Tracy Kidder's uh, biography of Dr. So Farmer. Really mountains beyond mountains and it really changed my life and dr farmer you've been one of my personal heroes since i read that book i thank you for all the work you've done i feel like um, your inspiration helped me and how i raised my children and i would like to point to that point my daughter is an rn on a COVID floor in a hospital she's also working part-time for your contact tracing program and she's working on get her getting her master's in public health so wow. thank you for that inspiration, and I want to say one more thing, and then sure. I'll go off air. When my daughter had to um, take care of COVID patients without proper PPE because of our federal government's failure, I will never get over that, and I think every American should be outraged about that. And thank you for your time. Goodbye. Kimberly, thank, thank you, you so for much. calling. That was a great a call, and I must say there's been a lot of emailers, uh, Dr. Farmer, that have emailed similar sentiments, talking about reading that book, talking about uh, being inspired by you. So so there you go. A lot of uh, well, people. You, yeah, well, you're very welcome. There's a lot. Of, I didn't out John Uni, by the way. He's got it on the website, and he yeah. gave a little, he looks, he, he talks about having COVID, and he, um, he's a great priest. He's a great priest. We need him. Too. Hey, Dr. Farmer, as always, thanks for your incredible generosity with your time and your work, and good luck with the contact tracing, and thanks for all of it. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Jim Marjorie, and anytime. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you very much. Paul Farmer is a physician and an anthropologist and a hero to many of our callers and our listeners, as is obvious today. He's the chief strategist and co-founder of Partners in Health, and he's the chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to be joined by our food man, Corby Kummer, our media maven, Sue O'Connell, and Callie Crossley. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, our engineer, John LeClaw Parker, and our off-site engineers, Dave Goldstein and Miles Smith. Jim Browdy, what's on the tube tonight, 7 o'clock? Couple Great things. Boston. Uh, Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins been more than outspoken about police brutality. Boy, she sure has. Injustice. The Boston Police Union is not very happy with her. She's not so happy with them. We'll talk about that. 
Tim Duncan is the former assistant athletic director at Northeastern and decided to tell a story about that he's now the athletic director at University of New Orleans. Uh, still lives in Newton, and he was he and his wife were stopped by armed police officers not so long ago, about the time that George Floyd was killed. He's going to talk about that experience and why he decided to talk about it now, and then a piece uh, from Liz Nieslaus about uh, cities and towns and well, what they're doing relating to all this as well. So that's tonight at 7 o'clock on uh, Greater Boston. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you tune in again tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Yes.